Hello. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host for today, Robbie Martin. This is going to be our first Halloween episode of Media Roots Radio. And unfortunately, Abby can't join us today. She's still off touring the country for her amazing documentary film, Gaza Fights for Freedom. She just stopped off in Toronto. She'll be returning soon for the final episode in October, um, which I'm sure you guys have been waiting for and I'm excited to do with her. We have a lot to catch up on. So many things have happened. But this episode today is mostly going to be focused on horror movies that you can watch during this Halloween season. Mostly, though, I'm going to be focusing on a horror movie franchise, a series that I love, and that's been an obsession of mine for a while. I have become more obsessed with it over time, and that movie series is the Phantasm series. Now, I'm going to bring on a guest today who I know from the political scene and not from, you know, being into cool movies. His name is Mike Jackman of Jackman Radio. Mike is a huge Phantasm fan as well and a huge horror buff. He's going to drop a bunch of knowledge about the horror films we're going to be discussing today. And after our discussion about Phantasm, which starts about 25 minutes into the episode, we eventually end the episode by going through several of our favorite obscure horror films or horror films that people tend to overlook that deserve more attention. So I hope you enjoyed this special Halloween episode of Media Roots Radio. Please stay tuned for the rest of the Media Roots episodes coming out this month. We'll keep you posted about those episodes. And here's my discussion with Mike Jackman. So I'm here with Mike Jackman of the Jackman Brothers. And this is the first time Mike has come on the podcast. But I've been talking to Mike on and off for quite a while now. We realized, well, we sort of inadvertently realized by being Facebook friends that we had a similar interest in horror movies. So for this special Halloween episode of Media Roots Radio, which we've never done a Halloween episode, by the way, before, we wanted to focus on a horror movie series, franchise, I guess you could call it, that I really love and that uh, I found out that Mike also really loves. We're going to use that as a discussion to just talk about good Halloween movies and overlooked horror movies that people who listen to this podcast should check out. So, Mike, uh, welcome to Media Roots Radio. Hey, Ravi. Thanks for having me on, man. Glad to be here. I've, I've been looking for an excuse to have you on. <laughs> and I think this is a this is a good moment to have you on. But we were going to, we had a plan, I think we maybe talked about it like a year ago, for you to do some Alex Jones recordings for Media Roots Radio, what do you call them? Uh, like, like radio spots, yeah, yeah. And that and that goes into some of what else you do. Um, but I want you to go into sort of what you do politically because you're also an activist. You're also a comedian as well, right? Tell us about what you do in in terms of your activism, the podcast that you have with your brother, and then also your comedy, and then how that also sort of crosses over with your political work and. In, in different interesting ways as well. Sure. Uh, well, um, I, I think going back, uh, I think 9-11 is definitely a common thread. Um, you know, 9-11 truth, uh, certainly something I've been involved in um, 
pretty heavily since 2005, 2006. Um, so that I was, you know, big on that for a while. And, and, uh, d- during the time I was in college, um, even before that, when I was a teenager in high school, uh, I saw what was going on with Iraq and the Iraq war, you know, when that was ramping up in 2002, 2003, and I felt very much uh, opposed to that. So, um, you know, spoke out against that at some concerts I was doing. Uh, I've been playing music, you know, um, for about 17 years, been in a pretty regionally, I guess, or New Hampshire area, successful band called Northern Stone. I'm a drummer. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, we actually opened up for Recycled Percussion, who's a pretty big band based out of New Hampshire. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but they had a Vegas residency for a while and they were on like America's Got Talent and they've toured all over the world and they were doing a big festival here in New Hampshire and some 15,000 people showed up and they selected us to open for them as one of their bands. So that was pretty cool. Um, But uh, yeah, uh, so politically I've kind of been paying attention for a long time and, you know, activism and I'm in my 30s now, so my activism is a little different than it was when I was like 17 or 18, that's for sure, which I, I think is the case for most people. You know, as you, as you, if you have the good fortune of getting a little bit older and uh, maybe a little bit wiser, more mature, and uh, can kind of see bigger picture things. So um, I feel like being able to use the internet and media, uh, social media, YouTube as a means of, you know, putting your views out there and, uh, some of the areas you're interested in and reaching an audience is, is a good way to do it. So I have a uh, YouTube channel called Jackman Radio, and I have a show that I do with my twin brother, Eric, called Politics and Pints, where we sit down and interview presidential candidates. We've produced uh, four episodes so far, with a fifth one uh, coming up with uh, Admiral Joe Sestak, who's running for president. And um, we've sat down with uh, Governor Bill Weld, Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, Marion Williamson, and uh, Andrew Yang. So we've had some great chats with them, and we've been able to integrate a little bit of our humor uh, that we do in impressions. Impressions is really the bread and butter of, of what I do. Um, you know, Alex Jones, I've been impersonating him actually since like 2006, believe it or not, before it was a, before it was a meme and a big thing. Um, so that's, that's been a lot it. of fun and he's, you know, it's, <laughs> it's crazy. And, and being someone who's kind of followed his career since 2005, 2006, seeing where he's at now, how he rose to the very heights of, uh, you know, the MAGA, the MAGA movement and, uh, you know, ended up having Trump on his, on his show on Infowars, uh, to being sued in the whole, uh, Sandy Hook lawsuit and losing lots of money and getting deplatformed. So to be an observer of that and, uh, someone who does the impression has been been an interesting thing, and there's been a lot of exposure with the impression. So it's a lot of fun, Robbie. I got to tell you, just sliding into it really quick. And I know we're here tonight to uh, talk about a seven foot tall, shape shifting, interdimensional alien, really a demon, who turns people into midgets and turns them into slaves, uh, so they can dig up carcasses and petrodollars at uh, Morningside Cemetery. So uh, yeah, I do stand up comedy. And impressions. I perform a lot with my twin brother Eric, who is a uh, professional Donald Trump impersonator. <laughs> if you want to check his stuff out, it's at jackmantrump.com. Uh, we have a lot of fun with that. 
Um, we did a big show in Boston last fall where I came out on stage as Alex Jones wearing an Infowars shirt and did a 10-minute rant and introduced him dressed as Trump. And uh, that was a lot of fun. So, you know, whenever we get an opportunity to produce a show like that, we do that. But mostly we, we just kind of We'll do stunts or go to political events. Uh, Eric has trolled Ted Cruz dressed as Trump. He showed up at a Clinton rally when Bernie endorsed dressed as Trump and almost got kicked out and <laughs> actually got FaceTime with Bernie. Bernie was like, w- w- who sent you here? Did the Trump campaign send you here? <laughs> and Eric said, look, Bernie, no one's been schlonged worse by the Clintons than you since Monica Lewinsky, quite frankly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so just stuff like that. But, you know, obviously humor is a big part of it, but we do have a serious side. But we do kind of a mixture. A little bit of it is trolling. A little bit of it is using real actual information and uh, areas that we're, we're interested in to get that information out to people. But then how do you get people to digest it? A good way to do that is humor. So that's kind of that's kind of where I'm coming from, Robbie. And I'm a big horror movie fan. I know that's why we're here tonight <laughs> to talk about Phantasm. So. Well, we're not just a... here to talk about that because definitely, I mean, I, I probably wouldn't have known you if it wasn't for your your political work and sort of the crossover and, and the different mutual connections that we have with different people. Um, Absolutely. And it's interesting that, you know, you say you try to blend comedy with your political stuff because I find you and your brother's political stuff extremely authentic. It's not a comedy central political story thing it's like you your your politics come through in a very authentic way it's not ironic you know you're not trying to be ironic and silly with the political stuff necessarily but you guys are funny people so it's like uh it, it's it's kind of a nice blend because i i find most late night comedy political shows to be honest to be pretty bad even as someone who's mostly a very like far left person I, I do find it to be like condescending most of the time and sort of talking down to people in a weird way that's ultimately not very funny. It it reminds me of like sort of the Norm MacDonald adage of you never want to seem like if you're a comedian, you never want to be like the smartest person in the room. It's just it's not a funny thing to be like. That's why you should always sort of strive for being like the dumb, like the dumb guy in the room kind of was sort of his oh, point. Exactly. Like be, you know, oh, self-deprecation is is much more oh. funny. <laughs> totally. I, re- I really appreciate you saying that, Robbie. You, you really you understand where Eric and I are coming from with uh, with our, our politics, our activism and our comedy. Um, I, I, I agree. I mean, I was, you know, going back, I was a registered Democrat as a teenager. I supported John Kerry. Um, that was back when I believed that the two parties uh, were really different and voting for Kerry was, meant voting against Bush and his war. Um, and then obviously, of course, Kerry voted for the Iraq war. Him and Bush are like, I don't know, seventh or ninth cousins or, or whatever. But what really matters is that the policies are are very, very similar at the end of the day. And uh, yeah, I, I I appreciate you saying that, man, because when we put our, our political ideas and thoughts on events out there, it, it is truthful to how we feel about them and authentic. Um, even if we get something wrong, we try to correct ourselves as soon as different information comes in. Um, but we certainly... We're certainly not bashful about putting our views out there, whether it's through comedy or through a social media blast or a um, a discussion. And we really try to be civil. I mean, people, you know, a lot of this stuff is very uh, controversial and, and heated and emotional stuff for a lot of people. Um, and you do get a lot of people who are very ignorant on a lot of this stuff and they just want to call each other names and they want to fight about it. But I would rather be civil and have a real discussion about it 
And, you know, when you start talking to someone, you, you figure out that you have more in common than you don't. You know, we, we all, a lot, most people are, are living paycheck to paycheck. And a lot of people are struggling uh, trying to keep a roof over their head. And how are they going to have time to look into these issues and to understand what's going on in the world when they, they have to worry about whether or not they're going to pay their electric bill or get groceries or get car repair? So, you know, I can understand why a lot of people don't know what's going on or don't really care to. Um, they want to put their head in the sand, you know, A, because it's scary and B, because there's so much information out there. It's like, what do you, what do you look at and what do you even believe to be true? Uh, so, uh, you know, for someone like myself, I've, I guess I've been very obsessive since I was a teenager um, and reading everything and then digesting it and making up my own mind on it and, and changing my views once more information comes out. We also have something else in common other than sort of our political interests. You also work with your sibling and you you do a lot of uh, work with him. It's actually kind of rare, I, I, like in our in the in sort of political activism or journalism or whatever, to come across somebody else who works with their sibling as I do. Abby, you know, is my sister. In case anyone hasn't learned that by now, <laughs> listening to our podcasts, <laughs> so that's really cool too. A lot of people don't get along with their siblings for starters, and then to be able to actually have like something you're passionate about. One thing to do a family business too, but you're doing shit that you're passionate about with your bro. And uh, I think that's, that's really awesome. And that's a rare thing to come across. It is. It is, it is really awesome. Uh, you're right about that. And it, it breaks my heart to hear that there, there are siblings who don't talk to each other, don't get along. And then there's even twins. There's twins that I know just in my own personal experience that are not close. They don't get along. They live separate lives. They don't have anything in common. For me, we've just always been close and our, our views, you know, for whatever reason, seem to line up, on, you know, pretty, pretty high up there. I mean, we, there's not much that we disagree on. And if we have a dissenting view or we have a different idea about something, we, we talk about it like, you know, there's been elections where we voted for completely different people and there's not an argument about it. But there's a discussion and there's an explanation why we voted for that person or supported uh, that campaign at that time. But it is really cool to be able to work with your twin brother and to work with your sibling. And uh, you and Abby have done incredible work. And I, I agree, man. I think it's awesome to, to be able to put stuff out there that you're passionate about with your sibling. And it, it is pretty rare, isn't it? It is, yeah. And I wanted to touch on something else you said, because we, we did plan to talk about, spoiler, we plan to talk about fan, the Phantasm franchise. I, already, I did already mention that. It's not a spoiler. But I wanted to touch on something else you said, because you're one of the only people I've spoken to on this podcast who had a view on Alex Jones from like outside of the context of when he blew up and became sort of a cultural phenomenon. And, and you sort of saw his rise and then his like downfall in terms of becoming like a partisan, you know, sycophant for Donald Trump. I, I find that very few people who know about Alex Jones understand what he used to represent, even though, you know, he always held some reprehensible views, he used to represent something that actually was like bridge people together and like, uh, like it, it encouraged like nonpartisan thinking. So I guess like, what is it like for you to see what he's turned into now and how much of a partisan he's become? It is, it is disappointing to see on a, on a serious note because, you know, there's footage of him bullhorning at, outside Rick Perry's house when he was governor of Texas. There's footage of him in the 90s being arrested at a George W. Bush rally. Um, you know, there's a confrontation he had with David Gergen, who represents 
you know, corruption in the deep state within both parties, Democrat and Republican, having served in, I think, you know, five or six different administrations. Uh, so to see him go from someone who did like, I agree with what you said. Uh, he did. He actually did a lot of great work back in the day and called attention to a lot of issues that are now being talked about uh, that, you know, previously would, wouldn't have necessarily been on the table. To go from someone who looked to be a truly independent voice, um, who was always putting out his own views, you, you know, whether you agree with them or not, and certainly some of the information is, you know, dicey where it came from. But, you know, he, he was over the target a lot of the time back in the day. To to go from that to then essentially by 2015 basically being a, a, a mouthpiece for Donald Trump and totally on board with him was weird to see. But I think it was a little transparent uh, because it was an opportunity for him. And I really think the biggest player in that whole deal was probably Roger Stone, who saw an opportunity with Alex Jones and Alex Jones's audience uh, to get a lot of support for Donald Trump by throwing some red meat out there, um, you know, on conspiracy stuff, on Islamophobia, you know, on, on being afraid of the other on the border. And they, they did, they whipped it into a frenzy. They did a really great job with that. And Alex Jones went along for the ride and, and, uh, you know, he, he, he made his bed and he's got a lie in it. You know, he, he, his divorce from his wife was very public. And, you know, I, I think personal information like that and what's going on in someone's personal life should be as private as possible. But unfortunately with, you know, the way he is and what he says on air and how he behaves, a lot of it was, out in the open and it, it obviously affected his, you know, his children and his son. And, uh, you know, in a lot of ways it's sad to see, and he is where he is now relegated to the bowels of the internet, deplatformed. I don't think he should have been deplatformed personally. Um, obviously I don't agree with his Sandy hook stuff and, but he has a right to talk about it just like any issue and give his opinion on it. But you know, that's kind of where we are now. So it is, it is kind of fascinating to see how he, he eventually became like a household name. And, uh, the, the late night comics had a lot of material to, to work from with Alex Jones and, uh, you know, everybody kind of rode that train for a little while and now you don't really hear much about him. Yeah. He was just sort of a, a passing punching bag. It seemed like in the media, and you know, a really easy target in a way. And and I have to say, I of all the impersonations I heard, none of them came close to being as good quality as the per impersonation you do. <laughs> I mean, Stephen Colbert's one was probably actually one of the worst ones that I saw, where he oh, tried to horrible. do like a a different version of Alex Jones. It was bad. I offered my services to Colbert. I offered my services to Howard Stern. Um, I heard back from Bubba Bowie. They already had a guy. The guy they have is pretty good, but. I'm not trying to be that braggadocious, Robbie. I think my Alex Jones is probably the best one out there. <laughs> Let's close this discussion out with just one more question I wanted to toss to you about Alex Jones. Because I think the fact that you were in a similar position that I was, that you sort of saw his rise from the early days um, and saw what he turned into. Do you agree that, that what you just talked about, where Alex Jones sort of decided to go along for the ride and do this for Trump... Do you think that that is actually uh, an integral part to Trump's victory to get Alex Jones's audience on board? Because this is a question that I struggle with a lot. Is it seems like the media or there's there's just a general sentiment in the mainstream media where they don't want to acknowledge necessarily how influential Alex Jones was. Like they didn't give him they didn't give him that kind of credit, even though they would talk about Trump going on Alex Jones. They would use it to just 
make Trump look like he was crazy and irresponsible. Not that, you know, this is a very influential contingent of the voting population. And I just want you to speak on that a little bit. I think that, that that was a huge part of it. And and like I said before, Roger Stone knew exactly what he was doing. And, you know, Donald Trump, say what you will about him, you know, just like George W. Bush isn't this complete idiot and buffoon that everyone paints him out to be. He's an incredibly calculating and, um, you know, uh, plotting individual when it comes to certain things. Obviously, he's very impulsive on a lot of things, but don't think that, that he's not capable of devising a strategy you know, whether it be for galvanizing support or, or building a coalition or getting in bed with people who are maybe less than desirable to the mainstream, that's really exactly what he did. And he's been flirting with this for probably, I mean, the first public utterance of Donald Trump and the White House, I think, goes back to 1980 or 81 when he was being interviewed um, by a reporter. And it really yeah. got hot in 1988. He actually came up here to New Hampshire and did an event in 1988, decided not to do it. But... I think his children, you know, Don Jr. and Eric were probably paying attention to alternative media and right-wing media in 2000, probably as far back as 2011. They were looking at that when he was, you know, blowing gas about running and, and the whole Obama birth certificate uh, nonsense. But certainly in 2015 and 2016, man, it was like fever pitch. It was like it was like they struck a match at just the right time, man. You know, Alex Jones was was coming up to become bigger than ever. and you know, according to some statistics, had a larger audience than Rush Limbaugh, did well in some markets, did better than Rush Limbaugh in some markets. And they knew that. And a guy like Roger Stone knew that, um, who had been, you know, traveling in alternative circles with his books on the Kennedy assassination and, you know, the Clintons and the, and the Bush family. So I think it was a marriage of necessity. And I think it was a, uh, a marriage of convenience for both parties. And I, I, I think it, you would really be ignoring, um, you'd be ignoring the influence that uh, Trump had on Alex Jones's audience. You know, it, I, I think that, like you were saying, they don't give, you know, Alex Jones a lot of credit. I, you know, they try to cast him as a buffoon and certainly a lot of it is buffoonery, but getting, Alex Jones's audience in with the whole MAGA deal, I think was huge. I mean, I went to a rally here in New Hampshire a couple months ago and there was 20,000 people there on a Thursday and many of them took the day off of work. You had people from New Hampshire, people from Massachusetts, people who drove almost across the country just to be at this rally. A lot of them had Q shirts on and Q hats and trust the plan. And they were all those people are all part of Alex Jones's audience. I mean, there there are dedicated, diehard listeners that will never leave Infowars and they will never leave Trump. You know, I think there's a ton of crossover with both of those crowds. So, to answer your question, yeah, I think <laughs> I think it had a lot to do with it. That I think there is a reluctance uh, by the mainstream media to give Alex Jones that credit and to fully show people the full scope of how Donald Trump got elected. I, I think they even did something similar with Pizzagate. They touched it, but they didn't touch it in the way that, you know, they almost used code for it. Like, I believe when the media first started talking about fake news before Donald Trump picked up the term that they were kind of alluding to Pizzagate when Hillary Clinton blamed fake news for her election loss, which was her narrative early on. I mean, you know, what was she, what, what was she talking about? She was talking about Pizzagate. Um, you know, what's, right. what's the fake news nuclear bomb of them all? And, you know, Alex Jones, of course, you know, he helped immensely with getting that narrative out there as well. 
And it, it's really, it's really interesting. I mean, to see what Trump, I mean, and I do think that does show some savviness on the part of Trump for sure. Um, he's not a total moron. He definitely knows how to play the game, but it's just in a really dirty uh, fashion. Uh, but that's, that's crazy. You actually went to one of the Trump rallies. Uh, I did, man. I, and I'll tell you, I wore a, um, I wore a red 45 hat. So I would, I would blend in and <laughs> cause shit. I feel like if you go to one of those things and you don't wear a hat, you get looked at like, well, are you really a supporter or are you not a supporter? And then if you go there wearing it, it's, it's, it's like the predator. You just kind of, you know, be able to blend in and no one can really see you and you can observe. And, uh, it's just, it's fascinating to me because, um, I did not vote for Donald Trump, um, but I accept the reality that he is president and I deal with it every day accordingly. And uh, it's uh, a lot of those people there were feel like they they were ignored their whole lives. A lot of them weren't necessarily political. They've never been involved in for uh, before. You're talking about people who were in their 40s, 50s and 60s who were never involved in politics. And they saw this guy who was just someone who was in their living rooms every night on TV on The Apprentice. And they're like, wow, I like that guy. I like, I like what he says. I like how he says it. I like that he sticks it to the political class. Um, I certainly appreciated personally uh, how how rude he was to Jeb Bush and to Hillary Clinton, oftentimes saying stuff to Jeb Bush that I wish I could say to him. You know, that spoke to a lot of people. And I don't know, in, in 2019, I question whether or not we can go back to uh, the veneer of of politeness. But, you know, one thing you can say is Trump has ripped the face off of that veneer so who knows going forward what it's going to look like i mean what was it like to just see the like the energy was it sometimes at these trump rallies people describe sort of a a a frightening kind of crowd-like energy did you experience anything like that or did it seem like pretty standard did you go inside i was yeah i (laughs) i was inside man i was probably uh i was in loge seating one of my good friends who's who's a really diehard trump supporter and the fact that he's a trump guy and uh, and i didn't vote for trump doesn't affect our friendship i mean i I have friends who are very liberal i have friends who are conservative i have atheist friends christian friends you know for me personally i don't terminate a friendship with someone based on political stuff like like has happened since the 2016 election and it's unfortunate it's something that i think is unfortunate that that happens to friends and families but yeah there was an electricity there was 20,000 people uh so they let they let 12,000 people in before the fire marshal shut off the spigot and there were another 8,000 people outside watching on a screen holy shit and it was totally electric it was it was a cross between the scene from Triumph of the Will, uh, a, a wrestling, a big wrestling match, WrestleMania, an ACDC rock concert, and a light show. Wow. And, it was, and it's thrown into this one amalgamation of all those things with Trump coming out, with Thunderstruck playing by ACDC, with lasers and, and smoke machine, and it was just absolute fever pitch. And those people would never turn their back on Trump. I, I, I guarantee you there's a, there's a core group. I don't know if it's going to be enough to reelect them. But there is nothing you can tell those people that you can see it in their eyes that they are true believers and they will not turn their back on their king. And that's really what it is, man. They view him as a king. He trots out the greatest hits, levies a couple of insults, uh, you know, talks about immigration, talks about Islam, you know, and even 
most of it's lies and, and not and, and totally untrue. They they totally eat it up, and uh, that that's currency. That's real political currency. And I think the only candidate that can even come close to that on the other side is maybe Bernie Sanders or Liz Warren at this point that can draw crowds like that. Certainly not the enthusiasm. That's for sure. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. Wow. Yeah. It must be must be a trip to actually experience it. I mean, what was it like to see? Donald Trump's body language on stage when you're actually there in person compared to watching on television because he tries to present himself like on TV you know he knows how to be telegenic so he acts sort of like a strong man you know from these these podium camera angles but how did it look being in person did he, did it come across that way in person as well Yeah he, I'll tell you he knows how to whip the crowd into the frenzy he he has that crowd hanging at his every word and a, a movement of the hand or a look can elicit a response from thousands of people. And he really did. He played the heel. Like when he came out to Thunderstruck playing by ACDC, he did a good victory lap around the stage for probably three minutes wow. with a standing ovation before he even said a single word into that microphone. And he, he's got that routine down pat. I mean, he knows, he knows what he's doing, man. He knows how to put on a show. He knows how to entertain. He knows how to push the right buttons. He knows how to say what he needs to say to get a response. And it, pff, that's a talent, man. He, he's really good at that. And he it, it comes through on the television, but even in person in a, a, a venue that, that fits 12,000 plus people, he, he commands them for a solid, solid hour, hour and a half. God, it's kind of frightening to think about. It was very Triumph of the Will-esque. <laughs> it seriously was, man. The, the MAGA hats are the new brown shirts, you know, and I, I'm not saying that to accuse tr all Trump supporters of being of a fascistic mindset. Um, you know, I have people in my family that that voted for him and love him that, that I respect dearly and love, and um, we, we may disagree on some things, but uh, it's <sighs> – I don't know, man. This is where we've arrived at our political discourse, and it's, it's it is fascinating to see and be there in person. And that's I guess that's how I would explain it to someone. I've had people ask me like, "Why would you go to that? You know, why would you why would you put yourself in that situation?" And well, I'm in New Hampshire, so I have the opportunity and I have the um, you know ability to go to something as small as a house party or a diner or a rally with twenty thousand people. And given my interest with politics, you know, I'm going to go do it. So. It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, like, like an anthropologist would look at it, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's the way a political scientist and an anthropologist would study something and look at it. You know, it's kind of, I think it kind of goes to how, how you feel about it. Like it, it is, it's fascinating. It's like the photo of you sitting down on that couch and who's behind you, like Robert Kagan or, or, uh, one of those neocon advisors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of like that. Yeah, I mean, I don't see why someone would give you shit for going to it. It's kind of like you almost need to witness it. Um, it's, we call it the revival. That's why I dubbed it the revival. It's like a revival. You know, it's it's a it's a it's an evangelical kind of event with fervor and, and true belief in action. And it's it is scary. It's comical, but it's also real. Yeah, I mean the the WWF or or just the pro wrestling aspect of it that you mentioned is interesting because I mean I, obviously Donald Trump is in, inspired by that as well. I mean, he was even in several actual wrestling matches, 
So, <laughs> I mean, he's a Hall of Fame member of the, of the of the of the Wrestling Federation. I mean, the Battle of the Billionaires. If you haven't seen that, where he comes running out his big ass, he takes down Vince McMahon. It's incredible. <laughs> there was eighty thousand people there going nuts, and it was a precursor to his rallies. And he he definitely takes a page out of that playbook continuously. I mean, who knows? Eat. Maybe that was one of his biggest influences for wanting to run for president. That moment for him. Oh, oh, it totally was. And and ironically enough, uh, around I think it was 2000 or 2004, he had a meeting at Trump Tower with uh, he had a meal with Woody Harrelson and Jesse Ventura, and he wanted to run as a Democrat and he wanted to recruit Ventura to be his VP and get all of his secrets for how he won in 1998 in Minnesota on a budget of three hundred thousand dollars. He's fascinated by that. Wow. I never heard that story. That's interesting. He, I mean, yeah, Ventura, Ventura told my brother, I bet you'd like to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. <laughs> Talking about, you know, this, this topic is frightening, you know, to hear how it was at this Trump rally. One good way to sort of channel the existential dread that people might be feeling still under the Trump presidency around this Halloween season is to watch some horror films. There's definitely people out there who don't like horror films who just can't handle them at all. So don't listen to this, the rest of this podcast if you're one of those people. Although I still will try to sell you very hard on the uh, movie series we're about to talk about, Phantasm, because it's definitely not in the mold of a traditional horror film. It, it's definitely worth watching um, if you're just into weird movies. Phantasm. The delusion of a disordered mind. A phantom. A spirit. A ghost. Tommy's gone. It's hard to believe. It was a good idea not to let your little brother come to the funeral. Hey, I don't like this place. Something weird is going on up there. The funeral is about to begin, sir. What's wrong with you? There's something up there. I saw it. You got some kind of an overactive imagination or something? I know you're not going to believe this, but these things were here. Oh, give me a break. This Halloween season, um, there's going to be a lot of like movie marathons of like Friday the 13th, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. The, these franchises that were sort of around when we were kids. 80s horror, you know, sort of brought the, the movie monster back. Mike Myers, uh, but Phantasm was a was sort of a movie franchise that I had heard about as a kid, but I never really watched until I was an adult. And my impression of it as a kid was that it was just as big as Nightmare on Elm Street. Like it was just as big as Friday the 13th. I remember seeing movie posters for it at the theater. I remember seeing advertisements for it in comic books and things like that. I remember seeing like Fangoria, you know, magazine covers with, fan, you know, that would be all about the new Phantasm sequels or whatever. But it took me a while to actually watch it. The first Phantasm movie, which came out in 1979, it just really, really surprised me when I first saw it. And I think I was probably 16 or 17. Um, by the time I got around to seeing it, I was already into sort of comedy horror, weird horror movies at the time. I was already really into Evil Dead and Bruce Campbell. But I has for some reason ignored Phantasm, and I was just really blown away by 
how unusual it was, how evocative it was, how well shot it was, how amazing the soundtrack was. Fast forward many years later, I post a clip on Facebook a few days ago or a few weeks ago of uh, from the original Phantasm, and then you chime in and you're just like, this is my favorite horror movie series of all time, and you seem like you had a lot to say about it, so I was like, damn, I, I think I need to do a podcast with Mike about Phantasm, because I've been looking for an excuse to talk about Phantasm on Media Roots forever. Tell us a little bit about how you originally got into it, like, what was your impression of it when you were younger? When you like, did you hear about it when you were younger or, or a kid? Like, and then how did you eventually see it? And how did you come to fall in love with it? When I was a kid, very similar to your story, uh, I watched. Uh, I was watching the Sci-Fi Channel in in the nineties in my living room, and I caught probably the last five minutes of Phantasm Three, and I I didn't know what I was looking at. I was like, wow, this is this is kind of scary. This is unique. The, the silver sphere, sphere flying around. I was so intrigued by that. And uh, eventually I convinced my parents to rent me the VHS from my local mom and pop movie rental place called Video Lane in Ringe, New Hampshire, which has been gone for probably probably 15 plus years at this point. So I got a VHS copy of the original Phantasm and I watched it in my living room at home and I just between the soundtrack and the cinema cinematography and the dreamlike sequences and the tall man, you know, chasing after Mike and not really being sure what's real and what's not real. I was hooked instantly. It's a movie that really demands repeat viewings. And to this day, probably almost 20 years later, I still watch it. You know, every Halloween season, I watch the sequels. Uh, my favorite is the original, uh, followed by part four, Oblivion, you know, which we can get into in a little bit. But it was such a unique film. Yes, it's a horror film. It's scary, but it has science fiction elements. And there's a nostalgia element to it, to riding bikes with your brother, to hanging out with your friends. And for me now, in the last three years, honestly, I've experienced many personal losses in my life. I've lost between... Friends and family, I've lost six people since 2016 that I love and, and are, was close with. And looking at Phantasm through that lens, it's a, it's a meditation on grief. It's a meditation on loss. It's a film about friendship, um, about missing your family. And it's all entwined in this, in this nearly two-hour surrealist, almost giallo, uh, you know, nightmare fantasy that, that never gets old. Uh, there's something else. I'm really scared about something that I did. I was messing around up at Morningside Cemetery, and I saw something. Something really scary. It's amazing that the film came out 40 years ago and it still continues to draw a large following. It's a cult has a cult like following, but, uh, but even more mainstream. I mean, JJ Abrams has cited phantasm as one of his favorite films. And in fact, a character in the force awakens that was introduced was captain phasma with a silver 
you know, huge uh, stormtrooper helmet that was based on the sphere from Phantasm. So the influence of this film can really not be overstated. Yeah, beautifully put. I watched the first one again fairly recently, and this is sort of why I was like, man, I really want to talk about this movie on a podcast. And what you said about how it's a meditation on, on loss and missing family it's it's really interesting how how evocative it is and i don't think it's just because of the soundtrack that it has sort of an emotional feel to it i mean i i think even the first time i watched it i remember feeling sort of emotional while watching it like even as a teenager where other horror movies didn't really take me to that place other horror movies definitely have similar themes but and I don't even, I hate using the word like Spielbergian because he's not the one who invented this, but it, it has elements that sort of would later appear in like Steven Spielberg films, I guess. You know, like I'm thinking like almost like E.T. And even as far as we're talking about like 70s horror, it's definitely overlooked. It's not really looked back on by people as a classic. It's more considered like a cult classic by B-horror movie fanatics. And I, I just find it interesting that it's sort of separated in a way culturally from some of these other almost looked at as more higher art horror movies like Rosemary's Baby or The Exorcist. And, and even in some ways, I feel like Evil Dead is more looked upon with more um, reverence. The first Evil Dead, which I I mean, I really like the first Evil Dead, but I don't think it's nearly as much of a masterpiece as the first Phantasm film is. There's something that's very lightning in a bottle about the first Phantasm movie. There, there's just no one else who's made a movie quite like it. And that's not to say that the sequels are, aren't any good. I mean, they are. They're just very different ki- like types of movies. You know a lot about the, the production of some of these movies. And you even had on Mike, right? The actor who plays Mike? From Phantasm yeah, on your Michael podcast? Baldwin called, yeah, he called into our podcast back in 2015. So tell me about how that arose and... How did you go from, you know, renting Phantasm at the video store to becoming such a fanatic that you ended up talking to him? Yeah, it's cool. Uh, so I launched Jackman Radio in 2015 with Eric, and obviously politics was the driving force behind it. But for me personally, as an individual, uh, horror films and film, I'm very passionate about. And one of the guests I want I wanted to have on, you know, Reggie Bannister, who plays Reggie, uh, anybody from Phantasm. And I'd actually been Facebook friends with Michael Baldwin since college. Nice. Uh, I was <laughs> I was working on a, a student produced horror film with my friend uh, Justin in college, and we had the crazy idea of seeing if we could get Michael Baldwin to appear in the film. And it <laughs> it didn't end up happening, but I stayed in touch with him. And once I launched Jackman Radio, he was a guest that I really wanted to have on, you know, for me personally. And obviously there's a following out there, so there would be interest in it. So I sent him a Facebook message and said, hey, I've got this podcast, you know, would you be would you be uh, willing to come on? And uh, he agreed and he called in and uh, we had a great chat. I haven't listened to it in a while, but, um, you know, when you post this, I can send you the link to it if people are interested in checking it out. It came out before Ravager, uh, the fifth installment of Phantasm was released. So, you know, I was digging for nuggets on that and asking questions about Phantasm Ravager. And uh, the actor who plays the tall man, uh, Angus Grimm, was still alive at that time. So it was exciting, you know, there was uh, to see the trailer suddenly 
released. I think it was March of 2014. The trailer for Ravager was released and then like out of nowhere without an announcement. And then the movie didn't even come out till 2016. Yeah. I remember you know, that. Which is kind of typical phantasm fashion. You yeah. Know, it's, the whole thing's really DIY. And that's another thing I really love about it. And Don Coscarelli had complete creative control since the original phantasm. Um, he got financiers. I believe his father was friends with a dentist that put up a lot of money to create the film. And they shot, um, you know, on rented camera equipment on weekends over the course of a year. So it took quite a while to film the original Phantasm. And you notice that Michael Baldwin, you know, he's a teenager in the first one and his voice kind of changes, you know, and he's growing up literally uh, as they're making the first one. So it was, it was surreal having him on the podcast and to kind of talk about his career. And he ended up producing uh, the fourth Phantasm film, Oblivion, and which came out in 1998 and they used they used tons of footage from the first phantasm that was ended up on the cutting room floor and they were able to integrate that and weave that into the story and go back to seeing these characters from how they looked when they were filming it in the 70s but make it relevant to you know part four which was filmed in the 90s and i thought they did a really cool job with that so we touched on that and uh you know talked about phantasm ravager and uh, about the fact that even before phantasm came out michael baldwin was actually really big in japan uh because he was in one of don coscarelli's first films called kenny and company i don't know if you've ever seen that one i haven't seen it but i've heard of it but oh yeah if you're a fan of phantasm you'll love kenny and company uh michael baldwin is in it uh reggie banister is in it he plays the teacher um you know, in a high school and really the nucleus for the original phantasm for Don Coscarelli, they had a scene in Kenny and company where someone is dressed up in a monster costume and there's a real jump scare in the film, which is not a horror film. It's kind of a comedy coming, coming of age, uh, dramatic kind of film. Um, and it, which is, which is incredible to think how young Don Coscarelli was when he made that movie, probably 22, 23 years old, um, directing, people who are older and, and having the maturity to put a film like this together. But there was one scene where there's a jump scare and he was watching the movie with a test audience. And he's like, wow, that jump scare got, a, got incredible results. I think our <laughs> next movie, our next movie needs to be a horror film. So he went away to a cabin for, I think a few weeks by himself and was just writing about this dream that he had about a severed finger in a box. And that's really where the whole phantasm thing came out of, came out of a dream. Wow. Did he self-finance the film Kenny and Company previous to Phantasm? Because Phantasm was only done apparently on a $300,000 budget, which is pretty amazing. I believe he did. Yeah, I believe it was his father helped and, um, you know, friends of his father. They They used his parents' house as headquarters for makeup and for the cast to sleep over and for production meetings and props was all done out of his parents' house. So it had a real kind of summer camp vibe to it. And I think that's another reason why a lot of people are, are into the movie because it it has that nostalgia of going away to summer camp and being with your friends and um, doing something cool, which is why something like stranger things is so successful now. And you alluded to, to Spielberg earlier, um, certainly E.T., another film that Spielberg did in the last, I think, 10 years is a film called Super 8, which is 
also very similar to Stranger Things and, and has kind of that that feeling of, you know, being young, anything's possible. Um, you know, certainly there's scary things that happen, but 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 there's an exhilaration with kind of being afraid, but also knowing that you're going to be OK at the end of it. There's like an adrenaline rush. And I, I think that kind of that speaks to a lot of people's fascination, you know, with the Phantasm series. It's told from the point of view. I mean, the, the first movie is especially effective. It's told from the point of view of the youngest character in the film, just so people, you know, know what to expect when they're going into it. These are not professional actors that a lot of the cast in the movie were people that Don Coscarelli knew. Yeah. A lot, a lot of people who had smaller roles in the film were friends of his, like the beginning scene there at the cemetery, the uh, cemetery during the funeral. Those are, you know, friends and family, uh, people who are in the uh, church during the funeral service, friends and family of his, and uh, it, it, he's he's retained that that kind of small tight knit group over his career, uh, you know. Certainly, if you watch um, Baba Hotep, Reggie Bannister appears in that film. Um, his short film that he did for Masters of Horror, I believe, in two thousand five, called Incidents on and Off a Mountain Road. Angus Scrimm appears in that. Um, he, he's he's very loyal to a, a core group of actors and uh, movie people that he's worked with, you know, for over forty years, and it's a unique thing to see. And I, I think he's really been able to retain that. Um, you know, obviously there were some snags with Phantasm Part Two, which I believe came out in 1988 and was put out through Universal Studios. So there were some changes that had to be made because the budget was was upped significantly. I think it was north of $10 million, the budget for that film. So, you know, for example, Reggie Bannister had to actually audition to come back and play Reggie for that movie. I mean, he he's probably the most beloved, you know, member of the whole or character in the whole five picture series. It's really a lot, especially Ravager is really Reggie's story. Um, even Phantasm Oblivion, you know, this is a guy who would do anything for his friend and his friends. So he had to uh, audition for the second film. Um, and of course they replaced the character. Mike is in the film, but it's played by James LaGrosse, a completely different actor. And uh, yeah, there's not many, not as many returning cast members from the first film into the second. Of course, they rectified that for part three, uh, which came out in 1994. Phantasm three uh, called Lord of the Dead in some countries and some releases. And they brought back that original core group of Reggie, Mike and Jody, which I think the fans really like to see over the years, how that dynamic has played out, which is, you know, another reason why I like the film too, seeing these cast members who've been making essentially one story since 1979 it's a really cool thing to see and it's very unique when you say one story these movies literally start right after like the previous one ends so phantasm 2 picks up right where phantasm 1 ends phantasm 3 picks up right where phantasm 2 ends which is kind of amusing in a way because there's actually a line i was just watching i think it was phantasm 3 where where reggie tells Mike he's like yelling at him he's like he's like Jody's been dead for 10 years the the line when I heard it I was like wait how's that possible because that's it's supposed to be continuous seemingly continuous is there time passing in between the movies and if so how is that possible because the movies take place right <laughs> after one another and and Mike ages which is is kind of never explained but it also kind of adds to for me, sort of the appeal of the movies because they have such a dreamlike, surreal quality to them 
that there are decisions in the movie where it sort of blends, blurs the line between is this a B movie thing where they couldn't afford to do this and they fucked up or they messed up or is this like a deliberate choice or they sort of working with what they have and doing strange things, things with it. So for example, in between Phantasm 1 and 2, of course, like you just mentioned, they recast Mike to be like a blonde guy. He doesn't even have the same hair color. <laughs> they show an extended ending of what was supposed to happen at the end of part one. And I don't want to spoil anything for people who haven't seen it. But basically it shows Reggie holding Mike and it's like they're hiding Mike's face so you don't see what the actor's face looks like. And he's dressed in the same clothes as he was from part one. But then when part two starts, it's a new actor. So it's almost like Don Coscarelli is not trying to hide the fact or trying to rewrite history and show you that it was a different actor the whole time. He's almost like rubbing it in your face in Phantasm 2 that it was a different actor, which is a strange choice to make because they've shot scenes of someone looking like Mike from part one. I don't even know if this makes sense, this thread I'm going on. No, no, I, I totally hear what you're saying. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, yeah, just the, the physicality of the, the characters it looks completely different. And there's many shots where it's clearly a stunt double or clearly they had a stand-in to film from a different angle because Michael Baldwin wasn't available or wasn't even in the film. And they're trying to make that trend. They're hoping that the casual viewer will just be like, oh, okay, that's Mike. Yeah, he's he was in the first two films. That's the character of Mike. But if you're, you know, if you're fanatics like you and I are, you're going to know the difference. And But you just go with it. You just you like, totally you know do. what? You're willing to suspend any kind of uh, basis in reality. And yeah, that, and that's the thing about the film. So even the first one, like, it, it is very surreal. Like, there's a scene uh, of a, a, a main character being killed. But then at the end of the movie, that character is very much alive. So I don't want to give away which character it is if no one has seen it, but I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and you see the tall man in different forms. You know, he, he appears as the lady in lavender, this very beautiful, um, uh, you know, uh, I guess stacked for the better words, uh, uh, <laughs> young blonde gal who's takes the form of the tall man, you know? So you're not really quite sure what you're looking at, but you really just kind of roll with it. And it has an incoherent narrative to its benefit. I mean, it's it's not a movie that's just nonsensical and all over the place. I mean, it, it has like a definite story arc to it, but the surreal aspect of it is is I think what makes you know makes it so rewatchable. There, there's a. I was reading a Paul Giamatti interview. Um, I think it was maybe I want to say like it was ten years old now. Where I remember him being asked who some of his favorite filmmakers were. And the first name he dropped was Don Coscarelli. And the guy was like, oh shit, you're a Phantasm fan. And he's like, yeah, he's like, Phantasm's like my evil dead. Like that's like my obsession. Like the way people are obsessed with the evil dead. I'm obsessed with Phantasm. And Don right. Coscarelli is like my Sam Raimi. And I found that comment interesting because I had already been a Phantasm fan at the time. I wasn't actually, I should state for the record, when I when I became a Phantasm fan, I fell in love with the first movie pretty much from the first moment that I saw it. But when I saw Phantasm 2, I was frankly really disappointed and I felt like it had basically become too much like a schlocky 
horror film that was resembled kind of other horror movies from the time it had lost some of its originality. Obviously, the casting of the, you know, Mike being different threw me off. I didn't understand what was happening. I just didn't click with me at all like the first movie did. So I didn't really even visit the later sequels until much later. I didn't bother to. So I read this comment. I was like, I wonder, you know, if he's talking about the sequels as well. With Evil Dead, uh, one could argue that, you know, two and three and even one, I mean, they're all fairly strong movies. You know, Army of Darkness is maybe the sillier of the three, but it's still a really strong movie and really feels like, you know, it's connected, you know, to the same universe. When I read that comment, this was actually before Paul Giamatti was in John Dies at the End. So I didn't realize quite how big of a fan he actually was that he was going to be in one of Don Coscarelli's last films. There's Ash from the Army of Darkness, Evil Dead series is sort of very mainstream in a way now. I mean, now that there's like a stars show, Ash versus Evil Dead, a lot of people know Ash now as a character from horror movies. Um, It's not as obscure as it used to be. Um, There's action figures of Ash. You can buy like really hyper detailed hot toys for like 200 or not $200, probably like a thousand dollars actually um, where it's like hyper articulated. And interestingly, I did a search online for Reggie Bannister action figures or toys and there, there aren't any, like there literally aren't any, there's a tall man figure that like, I don't know what company put out. I think it was like McFarlane toys back in like the early 2000s, but there's like nothing else in terms of merchandise made from Phantasm or even like fan-made, you know, stuff that came out later, even though there's such a cult following of it. But there's this character in this movie franchise that's like basically like the Ash of Phantasm, and that's Reggie Bannister, the ice cream man uh, from the first movie. He He wasn't the main character of the first movie, but he kind of becomes the main the protagonist in the in the franchise even though when i first saw 2 i didn't love it i definitely saw similarities between it and evil dead 2 and i'm wondering you know th- those are i'm wondering if those are just coincidental but like uh that scene where they go into the um the hardware store and get all the weapons and and customize them and like he makes like the quadruple barreled shotgun and that kind of thing you know that's very ash like behavior but reggie is a different kind of character but he he resembles ash in certain ways i mean he's a blowhard he's kind of a a jerk they turn him kind of into like a like a kind of like a dumb guy a little bit like in the later movies where he's not so much in the first movie (laughs) and he's you know and then one of his quirks is he's always trying to get laid which always obviously ends up getting him into trouble pretty much every single time but talk about reggie and why he's like such a cool horror movie protagonist who's who doesn't get the spotlight that he deserves. This dude doesn't even have an action figure. Someone needs to make like an articulated, like detailed Reggie action figure with the ice cream man uniform. Oh, I want to see the ice cream man <laughs> motif, and I want to see the flannel. Exactly, motif, both. Yeah, like a switchable he, outfit. Yeah. Oh, he rocks them both both so well, and and with the ponytail and kind of semi skullet. You know, I mean, he's <laughs> he's not really a horror protagonist that you could have in 2019 because, you know, he really is just an everyman. Yeah. He start. he's an, I, I was an ice cream man by trade, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's freaking ridiculous. Like he even, he acknowledges how ridiculous it is. My name is Reggie. I was an ice cream vendor by trade. 
Now, I'm a soldier. A soldier in a war against his army of the living dead. You know, he was friends with uh, with Jody. He was, you know, Mike's older brother in the first film and kind of thrown into this situation, you know, trying to help his friends. And I think a lot of people can identify with that. You know, you would do anything for your friends that you love and you care about. And, you know, it's 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 interesting. He really is just like a, uh, an everyman. Um, and he, he somehow, as the movies go on, has more uh, efficiency with, uh, you know, weapons and hardware and you mentioned the quad, uh, the quad barrel, and it becomes a, a little camp as the films go along. You know, there's a little bit of camp in the first film, which is, for me, part of the part of the charm of it. Um, but yeah, he's just kind of thrust into this. He's a musician too, which I think is really cool. I really like that scene where him and Jody are jamming in the first movie, uh, sitting out front having a couple of doseckis, uh, just kind of riffing some chords. From what I understand, they kind of made that up on the spot. And it's based on a song that they wrote, uh, you know, sitting here at midnight, which is, you know, which is a cool, cool little tune. You know, Mike's wearing a Rolling Stone shirt and um, yeah, they're just kind of jamming. So I think people identify with that. And there were scenes shot um, in the ice cream parlor that were cut from the first movie that shows that he had a storefront and he, he you know, had a, had an ice cream parlor and it wasn't just that truck. Although the truck has become iconic. I mean, my, one of the, one of my very favorite scenes from all the Phantasm films is the last bit of Phantasm Four: Oblivion. Uh, we should sorry, spoilers. Spoiler. Yeah, we should. Spoilers if should you I haven't not? seen it, but uh, should, this should we not talk about it? No, no, we should because this is actually I want to I I do want to kind of lean on this this part because I have a, a a rant to go on about um, Twin Peaks, uh, but I don't want to spoil Twin Peaks for you if you haven't seen. Have you seen season three of Twin Peaks? I have not seen the return. No, I haven't okay. seen it yet. I need to because I, I was a big fan of the first season and not so much the second season, but I liked it and I watched it. Obviously, David Lynch wasn't involved with m- much of the second season. Um, but of course, X-Files, Twin Peaks, Stranger Things, all, all they, I think, owe a lot to the Phantasm. But um, OK, so spoiler at the scene. Uh, Mike, as an adult, is in the desert. He, he had had the silver sphere in his head implanted by the tall man which goes back to the third movie the tall man has come is disappointed with him which is which is just so much symbolism going on too that we can get into um takes that out of his head and and reggie comes to his rescue but it seems to be too late and he's dying you know he says i'm, I'm dying reggie and it goes to this flashback of them just driving together when they were young from the time of the first movie and um, there's a voiceover, you know, that says, I'm still alive. And it's Mike's voice. And you can see it kind of catches Reggie's attention. And he, and he kind of looks and Reggie says, did you hear that? And, and he says, it was just the wind, only the wind. And that's how the movie ends. And it, you know, that type of scene just gives you chills if you're into the whole story and you really have seen it come full circle. And I'll be honest, for many years, I thought that was it. There's that That was the most beautiful way to end the Phantasm series. There's no way they can they can continue on from that. And then Ravager comes out um, in 2016. And of course they expand on the story and they pick up from the desert. But I just thought that that was an incredible bookend to the original series. And it really leaves you with more questions than answers. And that's another thing I love about the series because you, you know, there's no, I don't know, there's no real convincing um, narrative or reliable narrator. That's going to tell you what's, right or wrong or what you're seeing is real or not real 
And that goes back to my point earlier about repeated viewings, because you can take something from the first one or from any of the sequels. Um, and every time you watch it, you can take something different from it. So like, I want to go back and watch Oblivion now and see what I, maybe what I will take differently from it. But um, yeah, sorry, a little bit of a tangent, but that that's probably my favorite scene from the whole series. It's definitely a beautifully done scene because like you were saying earlier, Phantasm 4 has about what seems to be at least 15 minutes or maybe even more of footage that was unused from the original Phantasm. And when I say unused footage, I don't just mean extra stuff that they clipped off of scenes that were long extended. I mean completely original scenes that were completely taken out of Phantasm. So there's a whole scene where Mike is chasing Reggie's ice cream truck and like steals the ice cream out of it. There's a scene where they're pulling the tall man up by a noose uh, on his giant tree and like trying to kill him by hanging him. And then he starts like talking to uh, Mike. Cut me down, boy. Yeah. Cut me down, boy. No. Cut me down. No. I won't hurt you. You're killing the world! I'll go away, and I won't ever come back. You will? Yes. And I was just sort of blown away because I had no idea that they had any of this footage, first of all, when I first saw part four. But then also what you're referring to, the ending of part four, is something that I don't know if any filmmakers I had seen do this before. And I don't even know if any filmmakers really have the opportunity to do this where they can recontextualize old footage of theirs for something new that they're doing. He's taking an old clip from that was unused from the previous movie where the characters are referring to something that they're hearing and he's recontextualizing it by playing a line that he's making for Phantasm 4 in that clip. For some reason, that just seems really brilliant to me to do that. And the reason I think of Twin Peaks is because in season three, and I won't spoil anything about the ending, they use a clip from Fire Walk With Me where Laura Palmer screams and in the movie Fire Walk With Me, it seems like she's just screaming at nothing. And it was always sort of a weird scene from that movie that just seemed like Laura Palmer was acting strange, just kind of just going crazy. But in Twin Peaks Season 3, David Lynch actually recontextualizes that scene to make it appear that Laura Palmer is reacting to something that she's seen. And when I saw that in Twin Peaks, I'm like, fucking David Lynch, I think, stole that idea from... Don Coscarelli from Phantasm 4 because I've never seen another filmmaker do that thing where it sounds like the characters are reacting to something and then they actually add in something new to it. Not only is that scene in Phantasm 4 touching, it's just it's just such a cool idea to actually recontextualize old footage like that. And all the other footage too works so well because they're building on the characters. They're showing these scenes of Reggie and Mike interacting that you didn't realize how close they might have been from the you know the original movie. It's just so cool. 
And I think a lot of people might write off Phantasm Four because it's one of the lower budget entries in the series. It's definitely not, arguably not shot as well as even like the first movie is. It's It has a cheaper feel to it, but as a whole package, as like a just a film, I don't even really know if you could call it a horror film, really. I, I think it's like an incredible movie just on its own, like in any genre. And I think it really is something that people would separate from something like David Lynch because David Lynch is considered high art and this is maybe considered a B movie, but... I think the two are actually a lot closer than people maybe realize. And they're definitely tapping into some of the same creative energy. Oh, totally. Uh, I agree. I mean, yeah, you, you touched the, the emotion of it. Uh, we're following these characters through our own lives as we get older and, and we experience loss and um, how hard life can be. And then we can check back in on them, you know, over the years, which no, I don't think any other... You know, uh, there's that film that came out with Ethan Hawke called Boyhood a couple of years ago, and they the, the gimmick was uh, um, they f- they filmed the movie over the course of like I don't know eight, ten, or twelve years or something, but it was one movie. Uh, I forget who directed it. Linklater, Richard Linklater. I don't know if you saw that. I didn't. That kind of that reminded me of Phantasm in that sense, and yeah, Phantasm Four: Oblivion, I believe, had a budget of six hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which is minuscule compared to I mean, even small indie films, you know, that's, it's under a million dollars and it's clearly a, a passion project and a labor of love. Um, you know, Angus Scrim has talked about how they were out in the desert and he's wearing the suit and it's, you know, he was already a man in his seventies at that point, I believe, you know, incredibly uncomfortable, but not really getting paid much money, but they're all doing, doing it because it was a service to the story and to the characters and to all the fans out there who've been uh, following it along, you know, since the seventies. So, and, you know, like I said earlier, Michael Baldwin produced that one. And then coming into Phantasm Ravager, that started in 2008 really as a web series called Reggie's Tales, which was just going to follow Reggie Bannister and his character of Reggie. And it was going to be an online kind of thing. This is when YouTube was emerging and they weren't really sure how they were going to be able to continue the Phantasm story because there were some offers from big studios, but they did not necessarily want to use the same actors or go with Coscarelli's ideas. And he was not necessarily willing to part with the um, creative rights, which I I think is is a a great call. Um, I, I think it's great that they've used the same actors as they've aged, you know, and not other than the hiccup of Phantasm 2, they've not opted to go the reboot remake route just yet. Fingers crossed it may not, it might happen. I, I, I'm surprised that there hasn't been a big budgeted Phantasm remake, quite frankly, to be honest. But it was special to see Phantasm Ravager follow Oblivion however many years later, almost 20 years later. And uh, I, I think... This is probably it. I mean, obviously, Angus Scrim, who portrayed the tall man, is no longer with us. So if they're going to do something else, it's going to have to go in a different direction, most likely, and may not involve the original cast. But uh, it, it's, it's hard to put into to a, a neat box and, and to really put one label on it. And I think that's one of the things that has made it so endearing for all these years. No, absolutely. And we haven't really actually talked much about the horror aspects of this franchise the things that people who like horror movies would appreciate about these movies. Listen to me. This is not happening. We're gonna wake up. It's a dream. It's only a dream. No, it's not. The first movie 
Um, some people might find campy, uh, might find low budget in certain ways. The movie still manages to be extremely effectively scary and the atmosphere um, is extremely effective even with these shortcomings in mind I mean and that's to the movie's credit that it's able to be a very scary dark feeling movie with a very evocative atmosphere while still also being so low budget I also just recently saw uh, Don Coscarelli's movie uh, that he followed up Phantasm with Beastmaster for the first time and that has a similar feeling to it where it's extremely dark. You could tell that it's low budget, but the way that he's playing with what he's working with is just like really, really skillful. You you just feel sort of soaked in this atmosphere. I've never, it's, it's hard to say if I've ever seen any other low budget films, really low budget films, especially like for, you know, two of his early films, uh, any filmmakers, really early films that felt this skillful while working on a low budget. I mean, you can't say the same thing about Evil Dead 1. Like, for people who haven't seen it, they've probably maybe even seen the Silver Balls, the Silver Spheres, the Tall Man. They might have seen some of the iconic imagery from Phantasm before. But there's so much cool shit about it that I don't think people realize what sort of makes up this movie's vibe. One of the coolest things for me about Phantasm is that they've made uh, the, the idea of a mausoleum sort of an above-ground uh, cemetery, this really scary thing with these sort of marble walls, these columns, this sterile you know, sound. There's no sound. It's just really echoey. A lot of the movie and some of like the chase sequences take place in these mausoleums. It's really cool. I mean, I, I, just, I just haven't really seen another movie that's played around with that environment. Like, What are some other things that are, that are cool about this movie in terms of it being a horror movie? For you. Oh, absolutely! I, you're right. The mausoleum, the mausoleum scenes are are very iconic, and uh, a lot of that was actually created just using wallpaper. Believe it or not, a lot of what you see is just wallpaper that that was put on a on a stage in a setting. Um, the tall man, the tall man's hearse. I mean, that's badass. Him driving around in the hearse. There's an epic crash scene in Phantasm Three that that they did. That I, I think it was the stunt guy. His name was Bob Ivy, who also portrayed the uh, creepy police officer state trooper in phantasm four that Reggie blows up in the car, um, <laughs> performed that stunt scene, which I believe at the time, I don't know if it still is holds the world record for most flips and for a car stunt. <laughs> what uh, so, the that's, fuck? so that's really cool. And obviously Reggie's Hemi Cuda. I mean, the Hemi Cuda is, is, is friggin' epic. That the car that Reggie drives, um, which becomes more of a focal point in like Phantasm 3 and Phantasm 4. Um, considering Phantasm 4 and th 3 and 4 are really kind of road movies. They're, they really kind of have a kind of a Western vibe to it. So I, I think another thing that's really cool about it is is it's, it's playing with a lot of different genres. Uh, there's a slapstick element that's kind of Three Stooges, you know, esque, which Evil Dead, you're mentioning Evil Dead kind of plays on and, and and evil dead 2 is really kind of a bigger budgeted remake of the original evil dead and maybe they were trying to go that route in the 80s with phantasm 2 there's more guns more explosions more bigger budget and you know more boobs <laughs> yeah. you know and, and 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 a lot of people even roger ebert kind of commented on that aspect of it but there's so many unique things and one thing that the original phantasm was accused of stealing uh was 
the dwarfs, they said, oh, those are Jawas from Star Wars. Well, they were shooting the original Phantasm the same time they were shooting the original Star Wars. So there's no way Don Coscarelli knew what was going on with that. It just so happened it was a coincidence that those those creatures are very similar in stature and appearance. Um, you have the space gate, you know, the portal, the two tall sticking you know they're, they're it's like a, a a life-size version of a tuning fork which i don't know if, Don, if that's what he was trying to go for um with the fact that a tuning fork is a weapon that can kind of stop the tall man in his tracks um you know the tall man is is afraid of the cold you know the the cold is what stops him you know mike kind of mentions oh in the later sequel he goes oh the cold he doesn't like the cold and they flash back to Reggie bringing a bunch of ice cream out of the ice cream truck in the first movie, and you see the tall man kind of grimacing and kind of shying away from the the um, the cold coming out of the back of the ice cream truck. So there's just a lot of cool little things like that, and a lot of callbacks that I think stick with people and and have become iconic over the years. Yeah, definitely. And Angus Scrim, who plays the tall man, I think like people probably like I was saying, I think you know a lot of people probably would recognize his face and know of him as a being a horror movie character. But yeah, he's such a, just a powerful presence in all of these movies. And the fact that it's played by the same actor, I mean, you can't say the same thing for some of these other horror movie franchises besides, you know, maybe Nightmare on Elm Street, or I guess Hellraiser. Uh, or the Saw. Guy, <laughs> yeah, or Saw. The guy well, who played actually, Pinhead. Hell, Hellraiser, Pinhead's been portrayed by three different actors. Oh, it uh, has it. Uh, sadly, Hellraiser is an, another favorite of mine, which we, we, you know, obviously probably don't have time to get into. But Doug Bradley portrayed Pinhead um, from the first Hellraiser movie up through, uh, I believe, Hellraiser eight or nine, and then Dimension, which owns the rights to the Hellraiser franchise. They have to make a film if they want to retain the rights. So they went to Mexico and made a, a piss poor, cheap. Oh. Uh, abomination of a film. They used a different actor, and then they made another one a couple years ago um, called Hellraiser Judgment, which was a little bit better because it was created by Gary Tunnicliffe, who's the makeup guy on a lot of the original Hellraiser films. But they both films use a different actor for Pinhead, which is pretty sad because Doug Bradley's still around and he's still interested in playing the character. And they've been Clive Barker's been talking about creating a a, a remake or a big budget sequel for a long time, and it's never quite got off the ground. But yeah, Angus Scrim um, kind of rode that wave in the 80s when Fangoria was very big, um, you know, and started doing the conventions. And people came to find out that he's just a really was just a really sweet, gentle, kind and caring man um, who really got his start, you know, I believe doing stage or, or smaller, smaller productions and, and was a writer. He wrote liner notes for Beatles albums and classical records and actually won a Grammy for writing oh, liner wow. notes. Yeah. So he so wasn't he wasn't an actor before Phantasm? Or was he an artist on stage, you were saying? He was. And I think how he got into into Coscarelli's orbit, he portrayed uh the father in, in one of uh Coscarelli's films called Jim the World's Greatest. He was an alcoholic father character. Um and when Coscarelli was making he wanted to make a horror film and he was making Phantasm, he knew who his tall man was gonna be. And uh that's how he cast him. Interesting. Yeah, and, and if, if you haven't read it or people listening who are, are interested in some of the more behind-the-scenes and photos and tidbits, I really recommend a book called Phantasm Exhumed, written by Dustin McNeil, um, which is a fellow who's 
you know, uh, just as obsessed, probably more than, than we are, knows a lot more than myself, um, has spent many years becoming friends with uh, casting crew of all the films and wrote this incredible book with these unbelievable pictures. Um, and you can check that out on Amazon or he has a website. I forget what it's called, but he's written a few other books since then. But Phantasm Exhumed is a really great resource and a book for people who are interested in looking more into the Phantasm films for sure. Yeah, I definitely want to check out that book. I, I had no idea it existed. And Coscarelli has a book out too. He has a uh, um, his own bio- autobiography, which I haven't read, which I'm meaning to get. That's also available, which I forget the name of it. I can look that up. But, um, you know, there's still a lot of interest in Phantasm. And, uh, you know, like we alluded to earlier, people like J.J. Abrams are fans, uh, Paul Giamatti. There's, you know, there's Phantasm fans that uh, crop up all over and the influence can be seen all across different genres and, and different projects. It's a really, it's a cool thing to see. Yeah, Coscarelli's book just came out last year. It's called True Indie, Life and Death in Filmmaking. And, you know, he goes through Phantasm, Beastmaster, Bubba Hotep, John Dies at the End, um, and his other projects. So anyone who's interested would probably be uh, interested in reading that book. Yeah, I mean, Angus Scrim uh, is, he he visually looks like a character that you would see in, like, British Hammer horror films. Like, that's that's sort of the aesthetic that he has, appearance-wise. So, like, think, like, Christopher Lee or or someone like that, you know, from those kinds of movies. But I don't think he was ever really in any other horror movies that I can think of. He was in a couple, yeah. And, and Peter Cushing comes to mind, too. And I, I think certainly, you know, he was – I think he was, like, six foot four. Yeah. And they put, him in, they put him in platform shoes, and they had him dressed in suits that were a little bit too small for him. So that gave him a real – kind of overbearing domineering kind of uh visual and i know there's a scene in phantasm the first one where he breaks through the glass window of of uh the pearson household and he grabs mike from the front of the door mm-hmm. and, and brings him over to the hearse he's actually carrying him nice he's, he's carrying him over he puts him on a like a dolly type thing and then wheels him but to get to that point he was actually carrying him um he was yeah he was in the movie wishmaster i don't know if you've seen that one reggie bannister was also in that one I, I haven't a, seen it in years. I, I, what role does he play in it? I think in Wishmaster, he's either the narrator or you hear his voice at, at one point in the film. Okay. And, uh, you know, the, the, the tall man moniker and, and the voice in the character was definitely put on, you know, like the, the eye and the grimace. And that was a whole character that he created. And, and, and it, it was it's always fascinating to see him at the conventions. And I never got to meet him, unfortunately. Um, I do have a signed picture of him that I purchased from an autograph show. Um, but, you know, people always just described him as a very kind and, and warm you know, kind of guy who really cared about the fans and, and had incredible correspondence with anybody who ever wrote him letters. Um, he does have a small role in, in John Dies at the End. I believe he plays a priest in uh, behind a desk in one or two of the scenes. I don't know if you remember that. I can't recall it. I, I need to watch that movie again. That's a great film as well. R- really, yeah, really I enjoyed, good. I enjoyed that one, yeah. But um, no, you know, I think obviously The Tall Man is his legacy for most people. Um, but you know, he was around for a long time. I think he lived to be almost 90 years old. So it's incredible that they, they got him to appear in the final one, which, you know, a lot of it was, 
blue screen or green screen. But on uh, and what's interesting about Phantasm Ravager, it, it's the only film in the series that's not directed by Don Coscarelli. Uh, it was directed by David Hartman, who did work on several of Coscarelli's films. He was an animator and an art. He does great uh, horror art, um, and Coscarelli kind of entrusted him to take over as director. So uh, I, I need to watch Ravager again. It's the one that I've watched the least, but certainly Same. on the second and third viewing, I enjoyed it a lot more than I did the first time watching it. Yeah, it's definitely um, it's got a lot in there. It's jam packed with stuff. And it feels like a Don Coscarelli movie. It's extremely like loyal and faithful to the tone and the style of the previous movies. They they go to like a post apocalyptic future where there's right. giant silver spheres shooting lasers and blowing up buildings and stuff, which is pretty amusing. There's always something weird from each Phantasm movie that just makes it really unique. And there's just weird things from the franchise as a whole that just really stick with me. I can even just tell someone like one sentence that'll pique their interest uh, as to why they should watch one of the Phantasm movies just by telling them something that's like weird that happened in one of them. Phantasm 3, there's a character in the movie that's basically like a, a murder version of Macaulay Culkin from Home Alone that uh, <laughs> that sets all these traps, booby traps in his home to kill burglars or intruders that like actually kill them. A clear like riffing or parody of home alone. It, yeah. So it's, it's actually one of the funniest things I've ever seen in any movie. Yeah. That's the character of Tim, Tim, you're referring to the, the, the kid who ends up uh, kind of tagging along with Reggie on the, on his road trip. That's yeah, that is true. That came out, I think in 90, like 93, 94. So that was certainly after both home alone movies. So you got to wonder if they were kind of going for that, that motif. Yeah, I mean, the the Phantasm movies have so many great things in it. I would just say, if you are a fan of horror movies, and you haven't watched the Phantasm series, definitely check it out, because it's one of the most unique entries in, into the horror movie world out there. And it's especially unique, because as Mike was just saying, each movie in the series, except for the fifth one, is written and directed by the same person, Don Coscarelli. So his vision can be felt through each movie. It has this, a through line. He had creative control of each one. It feels like a real passion project. They're really weird movies. I mean, they're tonally even weird. There's slapstick comedy in these movies. There's fucking David Lynchian surreal horror elements. There's even like breaking the fourth wall aspects of the movie that make it unlike anything else. So yeah, like what, what do you have to say to people who haven't seen these movies? If you can leave them with some thoughts about why they need to watch Phantasm, why they need to love Phantasm. <laughs> that's a great way to, yeah, that's a great way to look at it. Um, it has, I think it has something for everyone. I mean, I, I remember uh, watching it with my dad and, you know, he got a kick out of it. Uh, friends in college who I introduced it to, got, you know, I'm, you're raving at a party. Oh, you got to see Phantasm. You got to watch Phantasm. And, you know, because most young people are, are familiar with horror films that are either a pretty straightforward slasher or they're supernatural or, or they're, torture porn or you know whatever zombie films this kind of has everything there is there's a zombie aspect to it there's supernatural there's science fiction there's a real esoteric vibe to it um you know it's 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 got something for everyone i think and uh, and i think you know in all the films if there's one that that people are going to watch obviously five films is a commitment and you know you and i would recommend everybody watch all five films but watch the first film and I think you can really see influences 
you know, in films that have come since then, whether it's Nightmare on Elm Street or like you were talking about David Lynch projects like Lost Highway, um, you know, Inland Empire, Mulholland Drive, Twin Peaks, um, even Blue Velvet. You know, there's there's some surrealism and 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 things that happen in that film where you got to wonder if that's that's really what happened. You know, uh, uh, Frank Booth is kind of like a tall man kind of figure in a lot of ways. You know, obviously a little bit more perverted and and uh grotesque but um <laughs> you know there's definitely influences and i think it's unique it's a unique film and i think there's a real warmth and a real heart and soul to these movies uh, you know because like you were saying don coscarelli his his fingerprints are all over all the films and even the fifth one he produced it and wrote it he didn't direct it but he was certainly very involved and it's uh it's going to be the series that he's all he will always be remembered by and uh he's probably now in his mid 60s probably 65 66 years old i'm not sure how many more films he will do if there will be another phantasm i mean they haven't categorically ruled it out um or if there'll be a big eventually a big budget remake but um they're just cool little films and you know a lot of people who've gone on to huge success and huge careers uh cite the film as, as an as a inspiration and an influence and um you know, a source of way to, to create stunts or to create shots or, or, you know, sets that they wouldn't be able to afford and in, in, in doing it, you know, literally in your own bedroom. I mean, some of the scenes were just shot in a house, you know, I think the interior of the first film was, was literally a house that exists out in California, certainly the exterior. So it has a real kind of, kind of DIY bedroom vibe to it. And, um, but it's so much more than that too. It's 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 an expansive universe, universe uh, with the red planet, you know, with with the uh, uh, you know the Civil War era in the fourth film that explores the origins of the Tall Man. There's there's just so much going on. The dynamic between Mike and the Tall Man. You know, what what does he really want with him? You know, what's he up to? Is he just trying to create a legion of the undead, or, or is there like a greater? Is there really like a greater explanation or cause or reason for everything? And, and Honestly, at the end of it, I don't really know that there is, but that's really part of the beauty of it. So if you want something unique, you want something weird, but you want something entertaining um, and authentic, I would recommend Phantasm and all five films. Fuck yeah. And also one of the best soundtracks ever for Phantasm 1. Not that the soundtracks for the rest of the films are bad or anything. It's just that they don't hold a candle to how great and iconic the the first movie soundtrack is and i'm not exaggerating it is one of the best horror film soundtracks i would say as far as horror movies go i can't really think of any other horror film that has as memorable of a soundtrack for me personally and i i mean i'll just throw it on in the car when i'm driving around i mean it's it's fucking awesome and the guy who made it is actually i mean he's done some pretty big movies and that's one thing about it that makes it feel that it makes it feel like it's not just a low budget horror movie that it has like this Hollywood level full fledged soundtrack, even though it's kind of a rock ish, you know, soundtrack it's, it it sounds legit. It sounds like a Hollywood film. Um, it doesn't sound cheap. It's a little bit goblin. It's a little bit, um, uh, Argento, uh, you know, Carpenter, but it's also got a little bit of a seventies disco flair to it with some of the action pieces. Um, but certainly that main theme is just so iconic, man. I mean, you've heard metal bands cover that riff. You've heard, you've heard a lot of covers of that and it's, it's very iconic. And when you hear the first 
bit of it, you know immediately what you're getting into. You know that it's Phantasm. And I, I believe a lot of the music on the soundtrack w- w- could not be duplicated because um, the musicians weren't even really, they don't even remember what they were playing, what notes or what chords. So there's no real sheet music to it. And, and it's, it's, it could never actually be duplicated or replicated from those original recordings. So that makes it all the more unique. Well, a lot of it was improvised, you know, or semi-improvised. Exactly. And that kind of makes it even cooler. They were just like really feeling it in the studio and like. It is, man. It's totally memorable. And I think there was a vinyl release a few years ago on Mondo, uh, the Mondo label. Okay. I'm pretty sure you can, you can get that on vinyl and it's available because I know Coscarelli had the rights to it. I'm pretty sure he still does um, for the the soundtrack reissue. But yeah, the soundtrack is killer, man. It's just killer. And, and and speaking of J.J. Abrams, he actually released and helped work on the remastered a version of Phantasm that's in HD, um, which I think they released on Blu-ray a few years ago. And the transfer looks absolutely incredible. I mean, it's... Yeah, the, the 4K that came out in 2016 was actually used on Bad Robots equipment. Um, and and J.J. Uh, Abrams would have Coscarelli come in and oversee it, and Coscarelli couldn't believe it because he's like, I don't have the budget to have access to this, but they've gone in there and done things with the sound and the coloring, and and uh, yeah, it is. It, it does. Sorry to interrupt you, but it do, it does look incredible. Absolutely, the 4K. I bought that. It's it's all. I had Reggie sign it for me. <laughs> nice. I did meet Reggie a few years back in 2016, and. Uh, yeah, I think he's. I, I think a lot of them are. A lot of the people who were involved in the films still can't believe the success and the popularity and 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 how it's in, endeared for all these years. But here we are talking about it. You know, October of 2019. So it continues. It's never over. <laughs> it does, and we need to make it continue and get even more popular because, like I was saying, man, I think uh, it's a stupid watermark, but I think having like an action figure of your movie's uh, protagonist or, or, you know, a collectible. I think that's sort of the, the mark for like when you really hit cult status. And I want to like lobby for them to make a Reggie Bannister action figure, high quality action figure. And I'm oh, going to, totally. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to try to make that happen somehow. That should be our next movement. That's going to yeah. be the next movement after the 2020 election. We're going to, we're going to make a Reggie uh, action figure and, convince film school students that uh, fishing line is what you want to use for your effects, not digital. Yeah, exactly. It's cool stuff, man. It's, it's inspiring. And I think anyone who watches it, who, who has a a passing interest in film or, or how things are done on a, on a micro budget, it would be fascinated to, uh, you know, to watch these films from, from that perspective, but also just, you know, just to watch it and enjoy it and kind of get lost in the story and, you know, whether or not what you're looking at is real or not, or, or part of the main narrative, or even has anything to do with the previous scene. It's, it's kind of irrelevant the way it all kind of flows and blends together. <laughs> well, since it's a uh, Halloween season now, and uh, maybe uh, the hardcore horror fanatics out there who are listening might get through the entire phantasm series uh, in one sitting, depending on uh, the kind of fanatics that you are. So that leaves room for, um, some other uh, horror movies that people could perhaps watch during the month of October. I already did an episode of Media Roots Radio where I talked about my favorite political horror movies, but I didn't get an opportunity to like actually talk about horror movies I just love for being horror movies. In this instance, I wanted to, I guess, focus more on obscure ones because 
you know, since we're talking about Phantasm, which is sort of an underappreciated or sometimes overlooked franchise, there are definitely some other horror movies out there that I think people might overlook as well, not just because they are obscure. Some of these actually aren't obscure. They're, they have, you know, pop, they're from popular franchises, but some of them are just later entries in franchises that maybe that's why people might overlook them because it'd be like, oh, why should I watch, you know, part three? of this franchise, like that's probably a shitty one. Um, well, but yeah, <laughs> but yeah, so you like, mentioned part, yeah, no, go ahead. What are you gonna say? I was going to say, you mentioned part three, man. I, I have to say one of the best part threes is exorcist part three. Um, I don't know if you've seen that one. Oh yeah. That, 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 that movie is, is, uh, it holds up, man. It's terrifying. It's definitely terrifying. I mean, it's, uh, I think it's the true sequel to, to the, uh, to the first one. Um, cause I, what was it? Was it Blatty that came back or, uh, um, yeah, it was written and directed by William Peter Blatty and it came out in 1990 and it really kind of continues the story of the first one. The second one I didn't like as much, you know, the second one the is kind of like a psychedelic set, like sci-fi movie or something. It's, I, I found it very weird. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a weird vision quest. Yeah. One. You're not really sure what's going on. Then, you know, you cut to Linda Blair in the house and the house like, you know, crumbles into the ground and it's kind of reminds you of Carrie. And you're just like, what the hell is going on? But the third one is like a like a detective procedural and a horror movie. And and some of the shots are just truly terrifying. Um, I don't want to spoil too much. If, if no one has seen Exorcist 3 highly recommended and recently it's been given a second look i've been into the film for a long time because i'm a horror freak but i'm really glad to see that more people are uh, watching it and appreciating it uh especially the performance of jason miller who played the priest in the original one the fellow with the black hair who gets mm-hmm. who, who ends up being possessed by pazuzu at the end of the first one and sacrifices himself for linda blair's character um turns up in the third one and it's it's not in a way you would expect, and I think it's done really well. So I certainly recommend that film if no one listening has watched it, although I'm sure a lot probably have. Yeah, it's definitely one of those overlooked movies. George C. Scott is also in it. He's great. When I was thinking of other overlooked horror movies, I ended up kind of randomly coming up with several part three horror movies just sort of inadvertently. So I'm going to fire off a few of them now that just came to mind earlier today. One of them is uh, Halloween 3, which uh, people uh, often skip because it's not in the canon of the Michael Myers Halloween franchise. Um, It is a completely separate film about something completely different than Michael Myers. (laughs) And it's, it's a totally separate plot. I think it's actually subtitled Season of the Witch. Is that yeah. is that right? But it actually has nothing to do with witches either. So it's like misleading in several ways. So you might people might overlook that movie, but it's weird and I think it's worth checking out. Have oh, you seen yeah, it? Totally. I, oh, I love that film. I'm really glad you mentioned that. Um, it came out a couple years after... So Halloween came out in 78. Halloween 2 came out in 81, I think. So the following year... Uh, Deborah Hill and John Carpenter, who wrote and produced the first film um, and came back for the second film. Although I think the second film was directed by Rick Rosenthal, and you can look that up. I'm going off the top of my head. I like Halloween 2, but you're right. Halloween 3 uh, had nothing to do with Michael Myers. He was not in the film. 
And what they were hoping to do, at least the money behind the films, it may have been Mustafa Akkad or um, one of the other producers, was hoping to make a Halloween film every year going forward um, that didn't necessarily have anything to do with Michael Myers. Um, but yeah, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, uh, Tom Atkins is in it, who was also in John Carpenter's film The Fog, another film that I love. Oh, great soundtrack, great, great cinematography, um, really creepy vibe. But uh, I think it's gone on to kind of be recognized as a really good standalone film. You know, um, they yeah. don't necessarily need Michael Myers. And there's a whole, there's like a cult thing going on and with, with the silver shamrock and the, the masks are, are uh, you know, they want, this company wants to get these Halloween masks out that end up possessing the kids that wear them. And it's, it's really terrifying stuff. And it really shows how the mass media is weaponized. If you want to look into it a little bit deeper. You know, I really feel like they were trying to say something about how television and news and mass media could be weaponized against people. Um, but, yeah, no, it's pretty scary and it doesn't really end on a hopeful note. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I did enjoy Halloween three season of the witch. I think it's a great standalone flick and it, it kind of initially started off as a little bit of a, I guess, abomination or um, kind of like a redheaded stepchild of the main series. But it's definitely worth watching if you haven't seen it. And it's also the last one to have an original John Carpenter score that's different and then has different themes than the first two Halloween movies. People might not realize that. Um, I didn't, yeah, I didn't realize that. It's fucking cool. Like it's, and it's actually one of his last soundtracks that sounds in the style. So like he kind of changed his style of music a little bit, like around Big Trouble of Little China, Prince of Darkness started to change a little bit. He would use more guitar, more drums. Um, they live. Yeah, exactly. Like more rock. More this was sort of more in the synth, synthy escape from New York. Um, you know, the fog kind of sound to it. Um, yeah. It's really cool. I highly recommend the soundtrack. Um, and I'll just fire off a couple more. I'm sure you've seen these as well. This one is not as overlooked, but I think it's actually probably the best one besides the first one which is nightmare on elm street part three the dream warriors oh yeah where uh arguably chris nolan derived a lot of inspiration for the plot of inception with a shared lucid dreaming team up to fight freddy krueger which was uh i think actually one of the only freddy movies where they where the characters actually like plan and successfully meet in their dreams to fight freddy and it's like a it's like a plot like a like a scheme that they you know plot against Freddy. The other movies kind of played around with that, but this movie actually does it almost kind of like a superhero movie in a weird way. It's it's very interesting, and it also sets up a lot of the other Freddy Krueger lore that later movies used, and and they include the fir- you know the actress from the first one, the main character from the first one is back. Some of the craziest Freddy Krueger death scenes, definitely weirdest. There's stop motion animation in this. There's tons of crazy practical effects. The Freddy worm, you know, that you've probably seen pictures of before is in this one. I mean, it's it's got everything, I think, from, you know, from all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. And also has, like, you know, some, like, hard R80 stuff, like references to drug use and set, you know, like, there's, like, uh, definitely, like, some, you know, sex shaming stuff where the characters who try to get laid, like, end up getting killed, of course. Oh, yeah. Which is the classic <laughs> 80s trope. But then the last part three one I was just realizing is actually probably really overlooked is uh, Return of the Living Dead part three, which 
is super low budget. It's really respectful, actually, to the Return of the Living Dead franchise, which is a zombie franchise separate from the Living Dead franchise, the actual one. And it has a really original story that is so original that it makes you realize that like almost every modern zombie thing on TV or in movie form right now is just like ripping off something old where this was actually like an original attempt at just a type of zombie tale that hadn't been told before. You know, it it was really, I I found it really, really interesting and it's definitely like really low budget. It's definitely, um, how do you say, uh, you know, some of it's, it really shows its age and it's, it's definitely cheap feeling in some ways, but I think it's, uh, it's definitely worth watching. And, uh, yeah, I mean, just for like the, the story alone and, and what they're attempting, I think it's really cool. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I love Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, uh, Heather Langenkamp coming back as Nancy uh, to mentor a group of, of younger teens who are experiencing Freddy, stalking them in their dreams. Zaza Gabor shows up. Um, uh, yes. The father from the John Saxon, the father from the first movie, shows up in a really cool cameo. Um, it, one of the actors actually, uh, who played Kincaid, his name is Kenny Sagos. I met him a couple years ago at, at a, I go to a lot of the, the horror conventions. There's one called rock and shock that I go to. It's here up here in new England and Worcester mass. I actually just went last weekend and met Bruce Campbell. Um, but yeah, I met, I met the, the actor who played Kincaid and chatted with him a little bit and he's a memorable character. He's in the third film and he's in the fourth film. Um, but yeah, I loved oh, Dream Warriors. If you haven't seen it, just watch it. And then, of course, Night of, Return of the Living Dead 3 um, is interesting because, like you were saying, tonally it kind of changes because uh, Return of the Living Dead and Return of the Living Dead 2 are kind of more dark comedy and there's a lot of humor. Whereas Part 3 kind of kind of just – it's kind of like a tragic love story. And it's, it's pretty like, straight horror too. It's It's definitely not a comedy yeah no not at all yeah it's, but it's, it's got a it's, wackier plot than the previous two it's a more far out weirder sort of more car in a w- certain ways cartoonish plot than the first two and it's it's kind of more sci-fi but it's more it takes itself more seriously which is yeah, interesting it's a, dar- it's a darker tone i mean they're i think they're they're continuing on with that that like weird gas that turns the dead in, into zombies and reanimates them but um they show how the military is really at this point trying to weaponize that and trying to expand on it and, and do, you know, uh, tests on human subjects and see how it works, which kind of, you know, an observer could say, oh, that's like MK Ultra, or that's like um, trying to make human zombies down in Haiti or uh, to replicate that, which, of course, you know, the government has, has looked at all angles for um, super soldiers or anything you know for war or like defense research and and you kind of see there's you know there's military brass in the film you know the, the 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 main character's father is is a colonel in the military and uh he's kind of exploring the base with his girlfriend who dies tragically and then gets reanimated he decides to bring her back which is never a good decision to make which is very kind of similar to the pet cemetery plot in a lot of ways um but yeah no it, it is it's a fascinating take on it and and i don't think it, it gets discussed as much um in the in the zombie genre certainly in light of like the walking dead or even night of the living dead um i really enjoyed day of the dead oh that's um, a fantastic one for and thirds, also very political was, too politically charged yeah i mean in day of the dead which came out in 85 you have military brass and muscle going up against scientists going up against science and reason um in this bunker 
which is, I think, fascinating. Again, very low budget. And I think George Romero was always trying to say something socially with his films. The first one came out in 68, uh, Night of the Living Dead, which was perhaps the first film to cast a male African-American lead, which at the time was very controversial. Dawn of the Dead comes out in 78, obviously all about commercialism and and, and how um, just blind, you know, consumerism uh, can drive people. And then 1985 is Day of the Dead, which is the third one, if we're keeping with threes. Um, and then, of course, later on, uh, Land of the Dead comes out in 2005, which was actually a big budgeted universal release. And Romero had the least control over, which I know disappointed him quite a bit. But um, in keeping with threes, yeah, I think Return of the Living Dead 3 and, and Day of the Dead are, are um, very worthy uh, you know, entrance into the zombie uh, subgenre. Day of the Dead, especially, is probably tonally, as far as George Romero's Dead series goes, the darkest one out of the four of them, I would say. The, well, I mean, Night of the Living Dead you know, is pretty dark, but there's nothing light at all. And it. I mean, it's it's pretty and it's also brutally gory um, for the time. It was probably had some of the best gore effects ever put to film. I mean, the, the, the guts being torn out by the zombies. I think they actually use real entrails and, and on set uh, they didn't refrigerate them properly. So people were retching, having to like basically plug their nose because they were like rotting guts basically pig like pig guts they were using that's true yeah joe Pilato talks about that he was the actor who played captain rhodes at the end who gets ripped apart and he had lived that line you know choke on him they were literally he was literally they had to put something in his nose or try and get him to, to not smell how bad that was but you were right they weren't refrigerated <laughs> and uh it's just awful but you know that's that it was authentic. It captured the authenticity of that. And uh, one of the re- one of the coolest shots in Day of the Dead is um, I forget her name. I think it's Lori. Her real name is Lori Cardelli. I forget her name in the movie, but she's looking at a calendar. Oh yeah, in the bunker. And all of a sudden, all these zombie arms come out. Yeah, and they they created that shot just by using simply like paper, like yeah, uh, like a paper like substance. But it looked like brick. And I, I, that's just another brilliant shot totally. that you can get from a, a small budget in a horror film that CGI just can't replicate. Yeah. And I mean, the gore effects in that movie are so well done. They're, they're absolutely seamless. Um, and what I love about that movie in particular is it opens up with an animatronic zombie, which I don't know if he had done any animatronic zombies in part two. But I thought that was particularly cool. Where they, it's like I, I think it's just like a dude with his face, like tongue hanging out. He's like mostly in silhouette with the sun behind him. Just a really cool shot. Yeah, I mean, what are some what are some of your favorite like obscure horror gems um, that you think people should check out besides Day of the Dead? I mean, what what are some what are some other things you've been thinking about? Uh, recently I saw a film for the first time that I never even heard about until a couple months ago. Um, it was directed by Brian De Palma and it came out in 1981. It's called blowout. Oh yes. Have you seen that one? Yeah. The one with, um, I I actually was made to watch it. They, they made us watch it in a, uh, filmmaking class in, um, no, sorry, not a filmmaking class, a sound, sound engineering class. It yeah. has everything. If you're if you're a film person um, and you're into the technical side of it, and especially with sound, and you know, say what you will about John Travolta, he's done a lot of schlock. He's done a lot of great movies, but I I I thought he was great in this film. Um, he plays a sound guy who 
does the sound for horror films. And in his real life, stumbles upon this major political assassination that he inadvertently records. Yeah. Which is which is a real callback to the JFK assassination in the Sapruder film. Um, you know, and it came out in the early 80s, so it has a real kind of grimy, uh, you know, dark feel to it. So it's not necessarily a horror film, but there's horror elements. It's a real suspense um, kind of action film. And uh, it's very interesting. It's, it was that time Travolta had done Grease, he had done, you know, Saturday Night Fever, and then he makes this film. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting. So certainly Blowout. Um, uh, also, Session 9 comes to mind. I know at this point that's probably a little saturated, but, I mean, that's a small little film that was shot in Massachusetts in my neck of the woods at what used to be a real um, insane asylum down in Danvers, Massachusetts. And uh, that had a very small budget. And it was filmed in, I believe, the year 2000, came out in 2001. And, uh, yeah, just a very effective atmospheric film where it's not terribly gory. But, and again, there's a lot of stuff that happens you don't know. Is it psychological? Is it supernatural? And a lot of it, I think, is left up to the interpretation of the viewer. So if you haven't seen Session 9, that's definitely one that I recommend. And from the 70s, kind of the Phantasm era, uh, there was a cool film that came out called The Sentinel in 1977 with uh, Christopher Walken and uh, oh, who else is in the film? I'm forgetting off the top of my head. But it's basically like a supernatural um, ghost story where there's kind of creepy things happening in like an apartment in New York City. And... You know, you don't really know what's going on kind of till the end of the film. It has like a real supernatural vibe. Yeah. Um, Creative vibe. story too. Well, it's got a weird twist to it. It's got uh, twists and turns that make it more layered than a typical movie about that has anything to do with hell, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it reminds me of The Omen a little bit because there's a little bit yeah. like a Catholic, there's like a Catholic vibe going sure. on. Um, to it, you know, and it's kind of mid to late. I think it's 77 that that came out. The Omen came out what, 75 or somewhere around that time. Um, oh, Chris Sarandon's in that. Chris yes. Sarandon, who was in Dog Day Afternoon in the original Child's Play. Uh, he was Night. also in one, he was in one of the Tales from the Crypt films and Fright Night. Oh, of course. Fright Night. Yeah. Oh, he's great Love. in that. Yeah. No, The Sentinels, definitely yeah. one of those overlooked 70s movies that thankfully, we were just talking about this before we, we started recording, but thankfully Joe Dante who's a horror movie fanatic, who's also done some great horror movies of his own, like Gremlins. In the movie Burbs, name drops the Sentinel in a conversation with Corey Feldman's character. They're talking about how maybe the neighbors have a gateway to hell, like the movie The Sentinel, and they kind of... I don't even know if he accurately describes the plot of The Sentinel, but that's actually where I first heard of it. So oh, I think cool. that's sort of where it made me want to track it down eventually. Yeah. And there's actually another horror. Now that I'm thinking about it, there's a crazy horror movie that they show a clip of in the burbs of like a, a woman being sacrificed, like in some kind of like satanic sacrifice over a fire. And I, I want to figure out a movie that's from because it looks really fucked up. But there are some other um, horror movies that I was thinking people might overlook during this Halloween season that, uh, that people should check out. If you're looking for a modern horror movie that kind of slipped through the cracks. Uh, one of the better ones I've seen recently was uh, The Autopsy of Jane Doe, done by, I can't pronounce his name, but he is the guy who made Troll Hunter, 
which is a kind of like a mockumentary, fantasy mockumentary about a guy who actually hunts trolls. So this is like a total left turn, totally different style of movie for him where he's doing like a straight up horror movie. And it's kind of like in the style of like an X-Files episode or something. It, it's I, I think it's really good. Ryan Cox, I want to say. I'm sure you're probably familiar with this director, Mike. The guy who's mostly known for uh, Reanimator, uh, Stuart Gordon, has a whole bunch of horror movies out there that are mostly really weird and good. If we're talking about another like 80s, 90s weird horror director like Don Coscarelli that's just sort of on a weird trip, um, Stuart Gordon definitely falls into that category. And I think people overlook him as well. Like From Beyond, the movie that he followed up Reanimator with is an excellent H.P. Lovecraft adaptation. He also did weird horror movies in the 90s that were, I think a lot of them are really straight to video, like Stuck, which is about a girl who does ecstasy at a club and then uh, while she's fucked up on ecstasy, drives into a guy uh, who's walking down the road and he gets stuck in her windshield. So he's stuck in her windshield in her garage for the whole movie. And she's just trying to work out what to do with this guy who's still half alive in her windshield. So I, I think definitely check out Stuart Gordon. Are you a Stuart Gordon fan, Mike? Um, I'm Yes. Well, I'm familiar with um, uh, Reanimator, which I first watched in college, which uh, who I mentioned earlier, my friend Justin, uh, his name's Justin Martell. He's now a film producer. I, I used to do a lot of activism with him in college. He is actually producing um, a remake of Stuart Gordon's film Castle Freak. Oh fuck yeah! Yeah, he's, he's Castle Freak is a good is is a great Stuart Gordon film. It is um, yeah. That I, just, that I just watched actually for the first time this year, um, which of course stars Jeffrey Coombs. Yes. Uh, who is in Reanimator? Jeffrey Coombs does a really great Edgar Allan Poe one man show, um, which he's performing this month once. Uh, I think somewhere in Pennsylvania or New York, which no I'm, I'm not going to be able to see it, which I'm really bummed about because I guess it's just, he's getting rave reviews. He's a great actor, Jeffrey Coombs. He's been in a, I mean, he's been in a bunch of stuff, Reanimator, Star Trek, mm-hmm. um, castle freak uh you know he turns up and stuff um but yeah my friend justin is uh that should be coming out next year they shot it this summer over in europe i forget which country they shot it in but uh look for castle freak and i don't know how involved Stuart gordon is in it he might he i'm not sure how involved but uh yeah for sure he's he's a He's a kind of an independent director who was also involved in the Masters of Horror, which I mentioned earlier that Don Coscarelli produced an episode for. Yeah. Um, called Incident on and Off a Mountain Road, which if you haven't seen that, definitely check that out. So it was the um premiere episode of the first season back in two thousand five, and Angus Scrim actually shows up in that in a, a pretty cool little scene. But uh yeah, there was um you were talking earlier about uh the autopsy of Jane Doe. I just watched that too a couple months ago. I've been meaning to watch it for a while and uh, Brian Cox is in it as well as Emil Hirsch. Um, and yeah, I thought it was good. I, I didn't really know where it was going. Um, it had an interesting ending and it kind of, it's kind of like phantasm. It left you asking a lot of questions yeah. for sure. One that I wanted to mention, we chatted about this earlier today. Um, if, if listeners have not seen or you is a film that came out in 2011, uh, which is a British film called kill list. I don't know if you're. I'm not familiar, familiar with it. Tell tell us about it. 
Yeah, so Kill List is a really interesting film because for most of it, you're not really you're kind of not really sure what's going on or what kind of film it is. Is it, is it like a, is it a crime drama? Is it, is it kind of a, is it a mystery? It's kind of a psychological horror film. Um, it's about a soldier that returns from war um, and him and his partner are contract killers. They're hired for a new job and things just continue to get really weird. And there's a lot of stuff that happens that leads up to a climax. That's, that's uh, pretty twisted. So I definitely recommend Kill List if people haven't seen it, for sure. So there's a lot to watch in the next couple of weeks before Halloween comes. <laughs> Absolutely. If you want to veer a little bit out completely of the just the straight-up horror genre, there's definitely some other movies out there that are really creepy or that have horror themes to them that people might have forgotten about or have overlooked. Two that come to mind, and and maybe I want you to think of one like this as well, like something that's kind of fits in the category of like family friendly horror, like something that's not a heavy horror movie but still has a horror theme, kind of like Gremlins. And one that comes to mind for me is The Frighteners, which stars Jeffrey Combs in this fantastic role. I don't want to spoil anything about it, but basically it's it's one of Michael J. Fox's like last movies, and it's also a Peter Jackson movie, and yeah. it's like it's one of the only like kind of you know pg-13 horror comedy movies that peter jackson made you know most of the other movies are horror comedies but they're extremely gory and like you know in a totally inappropriate for children this movie is pretty dark for kids but you know it's like a light horror movie and i think it, it tends to get overlooked i think it's pretty good and i really enjoy it oh i agree that is a great movie i think that came out in 96 Okay. Um, like there was another couple other actors. I, I forget who was in it, but, um, yeah, I remember really digging the frighteners. I, I need to re-see that. I need to rewatch that for sure. Um, one that comes to mind, that's kind of like comedy slash horror. Um, and for the actors that are in it and, and, and just kind of the overall presentation was a film called arachnophobia. Oh yeah. Spiders at John Goodman and Jeff Daniels. You ever see that one? Oh yeah. That one's great. That's a, that's a really interesting movie because it's not, you can't pin it down. Yeah. Yeah. No, go ahead though. Yeah. To talk, say more about mm. it. I'm just going to say that, you know, there's parts of it that are very terrifying and straight from a horror film, but a lot of it is kind of a fish out of water story. There's a family who's moving into the, um, you know, out to the woods away from the suburbs cause they want to escape the grind and that gets played very well. And it's kind of like, kind of like during the yuppie era, kind of the end of the yuppie era. Um, you know, it, Jeff Daniels plays like a small town doctor, you know, him and his wife are trying to kind of, you know, get a new life going. And then all of a sudden their house is overrun by a bunch of spiders that came from, a, I don't know, Africa or wherever it was <laughs> somewhere. And, uh, you know, the showdown at the end between the, the spider and Jeff Daniels is pretty cool because I'm pretty sure it's not CGI. It's practical effects. And as you got into the mid nineties, you, you kind of saw films kind of veering away from the practical and going more like that would be CGI spider now in 2019. And it just wouldn't be as believable and it wouldn't be as fun. So it's, I think the movie was a lot of fun and uh, I don't know if it's rated R it's probably, I would guess it's rated PG 13. I'm not I sure what it it's is. Rated. Yeah. I think it is PG 13, but that's, that's something I think I remember watching it as a kid and it was fun. I wasn't, it, it was creepy, but I wasn't like horrified by it. You know, it's kind of a, more of a family friendly horror flick for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, for, that's definitely a good, a good one. Um, they, they've been playing that on TV sometimes recently. Again, they hadn't for a, a long time. 
Yeah, man. There, yeah, there's so many other horror movies out there that that I want to revisit. There's probably so many that I haven't seen that I that I should probably check out. Yeah, I mean, for for a good for a good family viewing, if you want something a little creepy but a little lighter, but well done. You got the Monster Squad, which came out in the late '80s. Oh yeah, with all, all your classic Universal uh, horror monsters, kind of in a different light. I think. Great it's choice. Either- is it Frankenstein or one of them is actually kind of like viewed as the good guy in that film? Frankenstein, yeah. And yeah, it still, to me, has one of the best Wolfman designs of any movie. It's kind of almost like an exaggerated like comic book horror comic version of like the Wolfman. Like he's all buff and and like all fucking ballooned out. <laughs> and also that director, uh, the guy who made that movie, um, did like another movie, I think that's actually rated R, but it's also pretty damn good too, called Night of the Creeps, which people should check out if they haven't seen it. It's, it's, it's kind of a, I wouldn't say it's a horror comedy, but it definitely has things that influence other horror comedies. Like there's things in that movie that influence like Peter Jackson's Dead Alive and, and stuff like that. Oh yeah, totally. And Tom Atkins, who was in Halloween 3, is also in Night of the Creeps. Oh yeah. And he's coming back for the third collector movie which is coming out next year speaking of threes i don't know if you've seen the collector or the collection uh which are pretty grisly and violent films uh starring josh stewart i like them uh but I, uh, i've tom heard Atkins, of them i know i haven't seen them yeah tom atkins will be in the third one that's coming out next year but yeah he was in uh night of the creeps which is uh i, I haven't i don't think i've seen night of the creeps i know he's in it though because I, I i follow what he does oh you would um, love it I do need to see that. It has, it feels similar to Monster Squad tonally. It's more like teen, sexy, you know, like raunchy R-rated kind of flavor, but with mm-hmm. more horror stakes than Monster Squad. Like it's, it's pretty cool. And there's a lot of like weird practical effects work in it too that makes it worthwhile. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, it's it's been on my list for a long time. It's, uh, I'll tell you, if I didn't have to work a day job, I would just be watching obscure horror films and talking about them. <laughs> I'm really glad we got to talk about Phantasm. And we we spent a quite a long time also talking about Alex Jones and our sort of mutually shared experiences uh, in the political scene. You are still doing a podcast with your brother right now. Tell people where they can check that out and how they can actually support your work as well. Well, yeah, thank you very much, Robbie. It was a great chat, and it was nice to talk about something other than politics. We certainly touched on it for a little bit, and you know, it's part of our whole scene. Um, the podcast is called Jackman Radio, and we have a Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash jackmanradio. Um, and no matter what amount you want to give, everybody has access to the same content. It basically helps us... Um, you know, take a day off of work and, and produce an episode with a presidential candidate. We have a show that we've launched this year called Politics and Pints, which is on YouTube. If you type in Jackman Radio Politics and Pints, like I said at the beginning, we've produced five episodes of that with more to come. Which has a ridiculously t- good, I don't know how you did it, lineup of of guests. It's not bad, right? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty fucking Pretty fucking impressive, dude. <laughs> and I'll give you a spoiler for the next episode. We sat down with Joe with uh, Joe Sestak, 
who was a Clinton era uh, admiral in the Navy, also during the Bush administration. And we talked to him about the movie Under Siege with Steven Seagal. So that's definitely not to be missed. Um, and uh, um, we're on Facebook under Jackman Radio. And uh, Twitter, I think, is uh, centered is Jackman Radio on Twitter. And my brother has an Instagram, Senator Jackman, which he posts. I'm not on Instagram, but Eric is. And he puts a lot of the content on there with, um, you know, Tulsi Gabbard and all the stuff that we're doing. So we got a lot of stuff going on, you know. But uh, it's nice to let it rip about film, man, because I almost majored in film in college. I majored in political science, but I never lost my passion or interest in film. So I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk about film and a genre that's probably my favorite, which is horror um, which is my favorite because I feel like it's always timely and like comedy horror has the poetic license to tell the truth about shit that's going on in the world um, and, and do it in a way that's very creative and gets under people's skin and makes you think. So anybody who wants to write off horror as a cheap money grab um, needs to look at some of the films we talked about and go a little bit further into it. If you are Media Roots patron, don't forget to check out our political movies episode from last month where we go through all our favorite political movies so mike uh i i i know uh, people who do comedy hate it when when people ask comedians to do this but would you please leave us with um alex jones's final thoughts about today's media roots episode and and the topics that were discussed today well i mean we know that uh Certainly Robbie and I mean, certainly Abby is a paid uh, Russian asset, which is fine because, I mean, the Trump people, we're all on the Russian payroll as well. And what you're seeing in today's discourse is so many people just talking about Infowars and super male vitality and taking that can actually cure the zombie apocalypse, folks. This is this is groundbreaking stuff. Try my new bone broth. You will eat this stuff. I, I, I probably have it six times a day. That's why I'm able to do 18-hour broadcast, folks. Infowars.com, Infowars.com. Donald Trump. Donald Trump's a patriot, Robbie. He will bring back America. He will defeat the chai comms. He'll make sure that the false flags don't happen anymore. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't even know what to say about it. My brain is starting to melt. I just I can't even go into it, folks. I look, just Google it. Google Billing 7. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking amazing. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, dude. Well, thank you so much for coming on Media Roots Radio, Mike. And we'll have to have you, you on again. Let's do it again sometime, man. I'm I'm a, I'm a big film guy in general. Hey, we can do horror again or we can go into another another we can do political films, which I'm sure you, it sounds like you've done quite a bit of, but uh yeah, what a time to be alive. If you liked what you heard today and you've been enjoying Media Roots Radio, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Radio. We have a new donation tier. If you donate $30 per month, you get access to Abby's documentary film, Gaza Fights for Freedom, and my documentary film series, A Very Heavy Agenda. Thanks for listening. <laughs>